Welcome to Bourbon in Battles. I'm your host, Joshua Kaufman. And first, I'm going to start off apologizing for how long it has been since I've grabbed the microphone, sat down, and recorded an episode. Uh, There are a lot of reasons for it. Uh, We may go into a few of those later in the show. Um, But suffice it to say, I do apologize. I've told many friends this, uh, and I'm going to tell you all, I am always working on the next episode. I can't tell you when it will be out, but I am always trudging along book by book, um, source by source, trying to get through whatever I'm getting through uh, to to get the next episode out. Uh, again, this is not my job. I have a day job. I got kids. I got many of the problems you have. I do this because I love it. And, uh, and that's why I can confidently say there will always be another show, but I cannot confidently say when that will be. But anyway, enough of that. Uh, let's move on to our bourbon, uh, for today. So today we have Larceny Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Larceny is a product out of the Heaven Hill Distillery. Let's go ahead and see what it says on the back. John E. Fitzgerald's weakness was fine bourbon. As a treasury agent, who at the time was the only person legally allowed to carry keys to the rickhouses, he gave in to temptation, freely taking from the best barrels in each rickhouse. Those that contained weeded bourbon, bourbon made with wheat instead of traditional rye, these eventually became known around the distillery as Fitzgerald Barrels. Now Larceny Bourbon honors both the superb taste of this lawless treasury agent and the legacy of the old Fitzgerald brand. So a few more details about Larceny. Uh, Again, it's out of the Heaven Hill Distillery, and their claim to fame is they have 25% more wheat than other weeded bourbons um, on the market. And so what that's indicating is they have more wheat in their mash bill. So their mash bill as it stands, is 68% corn, 20% wheat, and 12% malted barley. Got a nice-looking bottle, kind of curved. Got a key slot on it and a key representing John Fitzgerald stealing some of this bourbon back in the day. All right, so um, also uh, something I should disclose, uh, this is not their standard bottle. Uh, this is a single barrel offering from Specs. It's 92 proof, the same as their regular offering. Uh, the only difference is it has been picked by, by Specs. Um, so theoretically, someone went there or, or actually had samples and picked this single barrel out. Uh, they don't give... As much information as, as some of the other brands, like a uh, you know a wild turkey with their uh, Russell's Reserve single barrel, where you get literally every little bit of information. But they do give you some. They give you a unique serial number. They give you a rickhouse number and a floor. And this bourbon is NAS, no age statement. But they give you the barrel date on the single barrel pick. So uh, this one looks like the 27th of February, 2014. 
I bought this maybe last year. Um, man, 2022, I guess. Um, maybe it was barreled the, the year before that. I don't know. So this is probably a six to seven year old bourbon right now. Again, single barrel, you have some variants. I've had really bad single barrels, but this is probably not much better than your average uh, larceny that you could just grab off the shelf anywhere. And it was the same price, about 26 bucks. So let's go on to the nose. It's a very dull nose. Not, not much jumps out. Maybe a little butterscotch and campfire, maybe. Let's go on to the taste. Okay, so very, so this is a pretty sweet bourbon we're working with, um, which is kind of the calling card of, of weeded whiskeys, in my opinion. So, so some sort of sweet cookie, think maybe like a snickerdoodle. Uh, it, it's sweet. It's not overly complex. Not these big waves of sweet and spicy like you might get with a standard bourbon with rye in it. Uh, very sweet, very straight and uh, to the point, uh, but a nice, very easy sip, sipper. Let's go on to the feel. It's a solid uh, thickness. It, it drinks just a little hair below its its 92 proof. It's it's pretty nice in that regard. Let's go on to the finish. You know, it's it's uh, pretty sharp. It's it's a pretty dry finish. I get a little bit of that snickerdoodle, kind of the dough, uh, kind of like. If you made snickerdoodles over a campfire, is that possible? I, I don't know. Uh, but that's kind of what I get there on the finish. So overall, this is a pretty solid uh, bourbon. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of Weeders. I tend to like the standard profile of uh, bourbon with rye. However, they've started to grow on me a little bit more in the past. Uh, you could compare this to you know, the, the standard offering of a Maker's Mark, also another Weeder. A couple years ago now, Larceny came out with a barrel-proof version of this, which has quickly become a, a hot, sought-after item. All in all, uh, Larceny, pretty solid bourbon. I give it just a standard middle-of-the-road B. Um, pretty good value as well. Uh, if you're looking to try a weeder, get into weeders, uh, Larceny's not a bad place to start. Check it out. And now, on to our battle. You know, as I record this, it's my birthday today, 35. And uh, as my wife likes to say, it's my last young birthday. So great, I have that to look forward to. But like many of you, as, as I got older, um, you know, things start to break down. Had a very minor health uh, concern. Uh, not a big deal. I'm fine. I'm going to be fine. But it was enough to, you know, kind of scare me and uh, make me think about things I haven't thought about in a while. And all this was going on as I was researching, you know, this this episode. And this episode started out one way, but because of the things I was going through uh, this past year, 
it, it kind of morphed into something else. And it was because of those things I was thinking about. Probably the biggest one being my my legacy and what I am leaving to my children. It's something that maybe has crossed your mind. It, it's one of those things that we tend not to think about it until we're kind of faced with something that makes us think about it. And specifically for me, I think about what sort of breadcrumbs am I inadvertently dropping behind me as I go through life that my children will pick up on? And, and would I be happy with that path? Would I be proud of that path? Most of you probably know this, but if this is your first episode, welcome. A little background on me. I uh, served in the Army uh, for eight years as an infantry officer. I did a couple tours to Afghanistan. I jumped out of six planes. I fast roped out of helicopters, and I put more miles on my feet than I care to know. And for those of you uh, that have served, you know it comes with its own little goodie bag of, of your service. You know, you got the little Christmas ornaments that from, you know, all the places you've traveled, uh, the shot glasses uh, from places you've lived and been to, deployed to. Uh, you get comfortable drinking uncomfortable amounts of alcohol, at least for me. My knees and my back are a little bit older than their 35 years would indicate. And uh, one of the little goodies that you get is is questions you get from others. You know, I will get questions like, you know, what was Afghanistan like? Well, it was fun and it was sweaty. Did you kill anyone? No. Were you scared? All the damn time. Uh, and... I feel like there's this reticence about asking questions of, of veterans. You, you don't just don't want to upset someone. And it, it's, it's thoughtful. But I really think and I hope I, I think we're turning this around. I've heard a lot of vets echo similar perspectives that I have that that we do need to talk and we do need to share these stories. You know, it's 1945. World War II's over. All the boys come home. Everyone kind of has a brother, father, uncle, cousin, maybe even a sister that served. We're talking about 12% of the entire U.S. population. You know, today it, it's less than 1%. It's small. And so it's even more important to share these stories because we can provide perspective for both vets telling the stories and, and civilians asking the questions. But there's one question I get that always gives me pause. Again, I'm, I'm a father now, very happy father of three beautiful children that are, that are my absolute world. And so occasionally I get the question, you know, would you want your kids in the army? And I usually joke it off and say, hell no, Air Force dentist, maybe. No offense to you, Air Force dentist out there. But if I'm, I'm being serious... I, I really struggle with this question. And partly because of this story. Because I've known about this story for a while, and when I get asked that question, I think about it, and it makes it difficult to answer. This is a story that spans two generations, 50 years, two world wars, seismic events that, that changed everything. But when we boil it down, it's fundamentally a story of a father and his children. 
and I imagine myself as as a father, and I put myself in in his shoes. Now that's a little comical, because that father is Theodore Roosevelt. Yes, that Theodore Roosevelt, the president, Teddy T R. That's who we're talking about. Now I'm I'm not trying to compare myself to T R. Uh, T R cast a pretty big shadow. And I want to quickly run down who Teddy was so we can kind of get an overview of this shadow and, and see what his children were looking up to. So in the year 1898, Cuba was still a Spanish colony. It, it was in the midst of a kind of like a 30-year simmering, low-level civil war that finally erupted into all-out revolt. The U.S. had a ton of economic interests there. While working on negotiations, we send a battleship, the USS Maine, to Havana to calm the situation down, to offer protection for the Americans still in the city. And in one of those quirks of history, one night, the Maine explodes, killing 260 of the 355 Americans on board. Now, this was almost certainly an accident. Uh, These were coal-fired ships, and they were very hazardous. But the press, in a spate of nationalistic yellow journalism, they quickly blamed Spain, and, and the rallying cry became, remember the main to hell with Spain. And that went all around the U.S. And at the time, Theodore Roosevelt, he's 29 years old, he's the assistant secretary of the Navy, but his actual boss was in very poor health. He was more one of these figurehead kind of people. And TR was going to be the one to run this war. And in a war with Spain... It was going to take place in the Atlantic and Pacific. The U.S. needed someone like Teddy, someone with youth and vigor who was going to fight this coming war. So, of course, Teddy does the complete opposite thing. He resigns immediately and announces that he's going to raise a volunteer cavalry regiment. He does this in my hometown of San Antonio, Texas. And the thing I like to uh, point out about TR whenever I'm talking about him He's kind of this walking conundrum. He's the first modern president, but he has these old world romantic views. He's a member of this New York elite upper class, but he has these strong sympathies for the common working man. And he really loved nothing more than getting dirty. Uh, The regiment that he's going to form is a similar amalgamation. It fills with over a thousand men. These are miners. These are cowboys. Uh, Texas Rangers, frontiersmen, American Indians, uh, people from Arizona, New Mexico, Oklahoma, and Texas, along with some of Teddy's old buddies, these Ivy League coastal elites. This regiment comes together and they'll be known as the Rough Riders. The bit of irony here is by the time they get to Cuba, they have lost almost all their horses. Uh, There's very little room in these transports. Men are getting sick. Uh, of malaria and yellow fever. The actual unloading in Cuba is, is very chaotic. It's it's far cry from a D-Day. If, if the Spanish had had their stuff together, it would, it would have been over before they started. The Spanish-American War will eventually be known as the Splendid Little War because it was just that. It was over in about a month with all the fighting happening about a week after, after Teddy lands. Uh, they fight a little encounter skirmish kind of battle on, on the road to Santiago called uh, the Battle of Las Guasimas. 
Then they fight the big battle the war is known for, the Battle of San Juan Hill. Uh, in, in this battle, the Spanish are vastly outnumbered, about 16 to 1, but they're holding these defensive positions on the hills leading to Santiago, where the Americans are heading. And with the help of Gatling guns and Buffalo soldiers, Theodore Roosevelt orders a charge up one of these hills. It's not San Juan Hill, actually. It's actually Kettle Hill. Roosevelt will call this his crowded hour. Uh, They take monstrous casualties. Roosevelt will display uh, tremendous bravery leading this charge, most of the way on horseback, which is borderline suicidal. In this fight, he will uh, shoot and kill a Spanish soldier. Everyone will recognize his bravery in taking the hill. He'll become a national hero overnight, which will propel him to the vice presidency as a Republican under William McKinley. And that's just a snapshot, just a little background information, just outlining this massive shadow that is Teddy Roosevelt. But this story starts in the White House in what today would undoubtedly be a press corps dream or possibly even a reality TV show. In 1901, William McKinley is is shot and initially doesn't die. Uh, He actually looks like he's getting better, but takes a turn for the worse and and does die. And so very unexpectedly, Theodore Roosevelt becomes the 26th president of the United States. One of the things that's often overlooked about Teddy Roosevelt, probably because all of his accomplishments and and because guys like uh, President Kennedy and President Obama came after him, but Theodore Roosevelt was the youngest man ever to become president. And with that comes a very young, very rambunctious family. America didn't just get Theodore. They got Theodore and this pride of of lions following him into this White House. And for the rest of the presidency, the White House is going to be a rather rambunctious gathering place for his six children. And just to briefly run them down, because they're going to appear throughout this show. So Theodore Roosevelt originally married uh, Alice Lee, and he was very much in love with her. Uh, They had a daughter also named Alice. Two days after Alice Lee gives birth, um, in his home, Theodore Roosevelt's mother dies, who he was very close to. And then later that same day, his wife dies. Teddy is devastated. There's a famous picture in his diary you can look up on the day that he loses his wife and his mother. There is just a big X across of it with the words, The light has gone out in my life underneath. The thought of losing his wife, Alice, hurts him so much that for the rest of his life, no one can call his daughter Alice, so they all call her sister. She is 17 years old when she moves into the White House, and the word from where I'm from that could best describe her would be a pistol. You know, in this reality TV show we're casting here, she would thoroughly be the rebel. She is smoking cigarettes in the White House pantry. She is smuggling liquor into the dry White House receptions. Uh, She kept a pet macaw and a snake and would walk around the White House with this snake on her arm. Um, a- after seeing this one day, uh, one, of, one of Teddy's friends, you know, looked to him and asked him, what, you know, why, why can't you control this girl? And uh, Teddy turns to this guy and says, 
Dan, I, I can be president of the United States or I can control sister. I can't possibly do both. You know, many of you uh, probably know an Alice. If, if you don't know an Alice, maybe that means you are the Alice. I suspect I am raising an Alice right now, but th- that's who she was. Now, Teddy remarried in 1886 to a childhood friend, Edith Caro, and she would give him the rest of his children. So uh, the first to come from that union is Theodore Roosevelt Jr., known as Ted to the family. He's 14. He's truly his father's son, most like him in many ways. Then the next born was Kermit. He'll be 12 when they move in the White House. He stood out because he was the only one with uh, blonde hair. He kind of had a morose uh, attitude, kind of prone to depression. But he'll go on uh, many adventures with his father, including the famous one to the River of Doubt in South America. Uh, Next came Ethel. She'll be 10. She's kind of like a second mother to the kids. She's always organizing the siblings, but much, much lower key than her half-sister, Alice. Archie will be seven. He's sort of a distant. Uh, most of these kids had popularity, were kind of troublemakers. Archie was kind of the one to, to strictly follow the rules. And then finally, the baby, Quentin, will only be four years old. He's, he's known for making friends with everyone. He will exemplify kind of the Roosevelt attitude that they weren't better than anybody else. And so he will go outside the White House and bring in these, um, for lack of a better word, street kids to, to play with him inside, which wasn't always approved by high society. And this hoity-toity woman will ask him, how is it that he gets along with all these common boys? And Quentin answered, Father says there are only four kinds of boys, good boys, bad boys, tall boys, and short boys. He's always getting into stuff. Teddy's letters about him describe him as as very cunning. You get the sense that he's this very smart sort of a troublemaker. And and this is the hurricane of a family that will enter the White House in in 1901. Now, when I started uh, researching this topic and, and learning more about this family and learning more about Teddy Roosevelt, I expected to feel like maybe less of a man because of, of Teddy's accomplishments. You know, you know, Roosevelt, the, the soldier, the, the Medal of Honor recipient, the explorer, the hunter, uh, the kind of guy who was stalking the most dangerous prey on every continent. You know, the, the list goes on and on and on so much that, you know, almost forgetting that he would be shot by a would-be assassin and will go on to deliver a speech afterwards, uh, not going immediately to the hospital. That's where his uh, phrase, it takes more to kill a bull moose, comes from. And and so, yes, I expected uh, that. Okay, I'll never uh, have as many accomplishments as as Teddy Roosevelt. And I can hear him in my head right now saying, well, not with that kind of attitude. That's something he would say. Uh, But I've accepted it and, and made my peace with it. However, what I didn't expect was to feel like I wasn't as good of a father as he was. Because maybe I can't do all those other things he did, but I, you, all of us can can strive to be as good of a parent as, as Teddy was. He's probably one of the most engaged fathers that I've really looked at and studied that that's a historical figure. He's, he's playing with these kids constantly. And I mean, like really playing with them, like they're playing hide and go seek in the White House. 
He, he's talking to them when he's not around them. He's churning out these letters to them back and forth, uh, letters that start with, you know, Blessed Ted or Dearest Archie. They, they really are the center of his universe. Teddy once wrote, quote, I love all these children and have great fun with them, and I am touched by the way in which they feel I am their special friend, champion, and companion, end quote. Roosevelt is playing hide-and-go-seek in the White House. He's organizing obstacle races in the halls. He's riding down on, on horses every day to a creek to, to play in the water with these kids as president. You know, it's part of his personality. One of his close friends, the British ambassador to the U.S., Cecil Spring Rice, once remarked, quote, You must always remember that the president is about six, end quote. Uh, and it really seems true when you read about it. There's a story that I love. Um, it's about how Ted got his first rifle for Christmas. It's this little uh, 22 rifle, and they're up there at their family home, Sagamore Hill on Oyster Bay in New York, and it's kind of like this woodsy retreat area on Long Island. So Ted goes running upstairs to his father, who's undressed, about to get into the bath, supposedly. Uh, the sun's going down, and, and Ted wants to know, you know, is this actually a real gun, Dad? Is, is this real? And, and Theodore tells Ted, okay, don't tell your mother. And he puts a round in to this rifle and shoots it into the ceiling. I mean, I, I could go on and on. The, the point is, uh, these children adore their father, and the boys especially are going to do everything they can do to emulate him. You get the playful, you get the, you know, service politically minded individuals, but above all, they're going to want to emulate the military record. And that's a tall order. Those burdens fall hardest on the namesake, the oldest son, Ted. And that's who we're really going to focus on for this episode. Like all the Roosevelt boys, he attends a public school until the year before his father becomes president when he goes to Groton. It's a very prestigious, still a private prep school up in Massachusetts. Now, Ted, he was not unintelligent kid, but he, he quickly fell behind the other students that had been in these you know private institutions their whole life. As Ted would grow, he would become very popular, and he would always be the kind of mischievous, good-natured boy you would expect from his father's son. While at Groton, he earns the nickname First Boy, and others quickly kind of flock to him. One day, he abandons the mandatory cap they're supposed to wear, and all the other boys follow him on a run through the woods in the freezing Massachusetts winter. Ted quickly got the blame for everyone catching a cold, but it's bad enough to fill up the school infirmary. We don't know what this was, but one boy actually dies from it. Uh, Ted gets double pneumonia. His mother comes to his side. Uh, his father cancels everything and, and comes to the school. And, and for a day or two, it looks like Ted's going to die too. And this is going to become a very common theme in this man's life. It's something I, I call the Rooseveltian curse. There's Nothing physically impressive about these people. They aren't large men. Ted's going to max it out around 5'8", and if he's lucky, mostly stay over 150 pounds. They all seem to have horrible eyesight. They're kind of sickly like their father. But man, do these guys have uh, have heart and grit and determination. It's, it's like something out of a 
Greek myth. You know, the gods hit this family with all their infirmities just to make it fair to the rest of us. Curse of the gods be damned. After a couple very near-run days, Ted Ted gets better and, and recovers and recovers his grades in school, too. Now, in 1904, as his father's preparing for his first actual campaign running for president, Ted is considering college, and he's floated the idea of, of going to West Point or the Naval Academy, which, again, not surprising, given his war hero of a father. And what might surprise you is his father's reaction. And Teddy really does his best to try to talk his son out of it. The president will finally finish this letter to his son, quote, I should advise you not to go in. I should say yes to some boys, but not to you. I believe in you too much and have too much confidence in you, end quote. Now, this seems to have worked because after his father cruises to an easy victory in the election of 1904, he's going to get Ted a private tutor. He's going to ship him off to the main wilderness to get away from the pomp of Washington, D.C. and fights and parties and everything. And he's going to follow in his father's footsteps and he's going to go to Harvard. Again, back to our reality TV show narrative. The press is going to be a buzz with the president's son going off to college. Ted just wants to be a normal college kid. When he shows up with his mother uh, to drop him off, there are reporters everywhere. All the buzz is aggravated by Ted uh, making the football team. Football is, is rapidly growing in popularity as a sport. It looks quite a bit different back then. There were only three downs to get five yards, and there was no such thing as a forward pass. And that led to things like these formations of where they were linking arms, just brutal games, uh, probably somewhat more similar to uh, rugby than modern-day football. I, like probably many of you, love football. I uh, you know, love to get up on Saturday mornings and, and cook breakfast for the kids and, and have college game day going on in the background. And, uh, you know, it, it's not college game day without some sad or tragic story of uh, highlighting someone who's had a tough time in their life or lost someone or, or maybe had gotten sick. Imagine if they'd had college game day, uh, you know, back in the early 1900s. What you would be seeing is weekly stories about kids who had been killed playing football. I, I hear all the time, you know, people predicting, you know, this is the end of football, this is the end of football. Uh, it's never been as bad as it was in the early 1900s because uh, that year that, that Ted goes into college, 19 Americans will be killed playing college football with 137 serious injuries. And, and this is bad enough that there are many calls that this sport is is too brutal, too violent, and it needs to be ended. Now, luckily, President Roosevelt is in love with the sport. He actually calls together the heads of a bunch of schools into an organization to kind of figure this out. And this organization will eventually become what we know as the NCAA. They make it safer. But despite that, that year, Ted is knocked out twice in the big game versus Yale. And there's a picture of this, of Ted being carried off the field, broken nose and all. He becomes this 
campus hero for this. He's he's small and but incredibly scrappy. He has no business being on this field. He's about 5'8", 145 maybe at this time in his life, and that looks very generous. But it shows again who we're dealing with here. That's, that's Ted. Ted's got the heart. Ted has the guts. Ted has everything his, his father has ever espoused. In a few years, despite being put on academic probation, Ted makes the dean's list. Teddy is very proud of his son as a Harvard graduate. Teddy is a very popular president at this time. He has this extensive network that comes from old money. But again, one of these admirable kind of Rooseveltian attitudes, Ted decides to find his own way. And he takes a job with a Hartford, Connecticut carpet company. And he moves to Thompsonville, Connecticut to start learning the job. And this is a big deal at the time. There's this one newspaper I saw and I can just hear the, you know, the little, uh, I'm not even sure what they're called, newspaper barkers or whatever, those little boys who stand on the corner and try to sell newspapers. I can just hear them now, extra, extra, read all about it. Teddy Jr., now a wool sorter, gets $5 a week, wants to learn all about making carpets, has to labor 10 hours a day. This uh, same paper will include a quote that is just so quintessentially Ted. Quote, I don't know why there should be so much fuss. End quote. This is hard work. He works 10-hour shifts Monday to Friday, five hours a day on Saturday. And surprise, surprise, Ted kind of has a knack for purchasing wool in bulk. Uh, Apparently, that's a big part of of the job was prejudging how much weight will be lost once you wash uh, this wool. Uh, they're working on some narrow margins here and, and the feel, the smell, even the, even the taste can help determine how much you're going to lose in the washing. And Ted was a natural at this. So really, if you're not where you want to be in life, uh, which is very common feeling, you know, get some perspective, ask yourself if your father's the president, if you're a Harvard graduate, are, are you licking wool? You know, no offense to the wool lickers out there, but, you know, if Ted's fine with it, no regrets because like so often in life, when you set off on your own path, you know, life rewards you. And, and one weekend, Ted gets invited to a party. It's, it's one of those rich people, summer homes kind of a thing, uh, to ride horses and play games and swim together, dinner, that sort of thing for the weekend. He sits down to dinner the first night next to a young Miss Eleanor Alexander. She was 19 years old and pretty much the opposite of all the Roosevelts. Uh, she's an only child of parents that have been married and divorced and married and divorced again. But she's fresh off this camping trip to Yellowstone, and, and she wants to talk and tell people about how awesome it was, but she's very quiet, she's very shy. Again, not a Roosevelt. She had heard about... Ted Roosevelt before, but she had no desire, she said, to meet the president's son because she assumed, you know, he would be conceited and and full of himself. But there at dinner, she finds herself sitting right next to 21-year-old Ted. Ted is immediately smitten. He writes her all the time. She lives in New York and Ted saves his money for train tickets. He gets off his Saturday shift. He takes the train to New York, spends all day Sunday with Eleanor only to catch the last train back to Connecticut Sunday night, just in time to roll into a 10-hour shift Monday morning. 
Ted's romantic life is the closest thing I can think of to, um, you know, the Royals in Great Britain. It's, um, rumors about his, his dating is, is being printed in papers. Uh, all these rumors about Ted marrying, you know, exotic, uh, people from other countries, you know, these pretty young actresses, the daughter of the Chinese minister. And again, when they finally announced the engagement, you see all the, uh, all the pomp of what you would expect of a, a royal wedding kind of thing. Uh, they are married on 20 June 1910 at the Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York. The church was filled to the doors. There were crowds of people outside that had to be kept at bay by the New York police. But to show you how uh, you know royal of a wedding, they leave this reception and they have to make a getaway, like a true getaway. They get into the car. They have to leave at full speed. They have uh, to keep the reporters from following them. Like they have streets blocked off. And they have this sort of honeymoon where they go across the country. Ted has just been promoted in this carpet business uh, to a new job in San Francisco. And they drive there and they're staying at hotels along the way, giving fake names and uh, still reporters find them eventually. But this is the world they're going to settle into for a few years out in San Francisco. They're going to have their first daughter, Grace. They're going to enjoy their first home together, their first hosting dinner parties but 1912 is a big year for the Roosevelt family. The Republican Party under the incumbent, President Taft, who is Theodore Roosevelt's friend and hand-picked successor, has split into a conservative wing under Taft and a progressive wing under Roosevelt. Teddy is initially reluctant to enter the race, but more and more people are asking him to challenge Taft, and he eventually does. Now, it's interesting the parties had at this time just started experimenting with a primary process. This is the era where political bosses, people controlled the power, the kingmakers, these people are starting to lose power as the primary process starts to roll out across all these states. Roosevelt challenges Taft, and by the time of the convention, Taft has received 566 delegates which is a hundred more than what Teddy received and more than the 540 required for the nomination. But when you look at the actual votes cast, Roosevelt receives 51% of the vote compared to 33% for Taft. And Roosevelt's side will also argue that a full 200 of Taft's delegates were from Southern states. Those were states that no Republican was going to win that year anyway. After this, Roosevelt will form his own party on the campaign trail that's where he will be shot that year the bullet will go through his clothes the glasses case in his 50 page folded speech and lodge in his chest and this is when theodore does his most theodore roosevelt thing ever he tells the crowd he's shot but it takes more to kill a bull moose roosevelt will fail to win but will come in second with 27 percent of the vote this is a split of the Republican vote and will cost Taft the re-election, ensuring that the Democratic nominee, Woodrow Wilson, will become the next president. It's no doubt that watching his father run again stirred political feelings in Ted. Eleanor says Ted always had an interest in politics, but he didn't want to be you know, dependent on the government for his salary to support his family. And so he set out to earn enough money so he felt like he could 
commit to a life of public service. He gets this job in investment banking as a bond salesman, moves back to New York. It starts off very rough initially. Eleanor describes Ted's father in 1912 as being the most hated man on Wall Street for his progressive politics. And Ted gets a lot of, you know, rich, high society New Yorkers looking at him like, I would never thought I would see a Roosevelt in my office, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, but Ted does well out of sheer determination and hard work. It also helps he's incredibly likable. People just kind of gravitate towards him. And so he's quickly recruited to join another firm, makes partner. Eleanor, you know, says they reinvest almost all their money back into this firm. He lives very frugally. They don't have a car. Uh, she claims he smokes only the cheapest tobacco and wears shoes until they have uh, holes in them. But this hard work pays off because after a year... Ted's share of the profit out of this firm is 150000 which is equivalent to about $4 million today. And it's likely in a different world, Ted would have amassed a small fortune. He would have struck while the iron was hot, and he would have quickly rose through the political world. But that was not to be. Most of the time, we live our lives on the whims of our own decisions and the decisions of those around us. You know, your spouse, your children, your boss, your co-workers over time influence these decisions and directions you're heading. But every now and then, something happens beyond our control that, that completely reroutes the direction your life was going. And it's easy when you read about these events in the history book, uh, these grand cataclysmic events between nations or cultures or armies and whatever, whatever it is, y- you know, you tend to forget that these have very real impacts, that they had very real impacts on the people living at the time. And for Ted Roosevelt and millions of other people around the world, that day comes on 28 June 1914, when the Austro-Hungarian Archduke Franz Ferdinand is assassinated by a Bosnian Serb, Gavrilo Princip, and it pushes the first domino that would start World War One, And within a month, the central powers of Germany and Austria-Hungary are locked in this death struggle against France, Belgium, Great Britain, Serbia, and Russia. And it's shocking to everyone the scale of this destruction. To give you a sense of this scale, the deadliest single day in American military history, 17 September 1862, that's the Battle of Antietam, where both sides are technically Americans, combined for 5,389 killed in action. You know, Europe hasn't seen fighting on this scale since the Napoleonic Wars. In those wars, the deadliest single day was the Battle of Borodino. That's part of Napoleon's march on Moscow. And Napoleon will have 6,562 killed in action on that day. But on 22 August 1914, at the Battle of the Frontiers, the French will have... 27,000 people killed in a single day. That's about the average home attendance this last year for the Philadelphia Phillies. So imagine, you know, sitting in Citizens Bank Park in Philadelphia, and at the end of the game, everyone in there is dead. That's the scale we're talking about here. And it's becoming rapidly clear this is just the beginning. Now in America for a little while at least, it's business as usual. There were immediate sympathies drawn, to be sure. Culture mattered. Religion mattered. Where you lived mattered. When your family immigrated to the U.S., but probably nothing as big as 
where your family immigrated from. European immigration to the U.S. actually peaks in 1907, so just before this war. German Americans are by far the largest ethnic group, more than 8 million of them. But it wasn't necessarily pro-German, pro-war. It was more a strict desire to remain neutral. There was also a large Irish immigrant population that was not keen on coming to British aid. There is a large women's peace movement led by the famous women's suffragist Jane Addams. Finally, there's the party in power, the Democrats, who were largely elected by those Southern Christians, those denominations who were in favor of strict neutrality and considered themselves and called themselves pacifists. On the other side of that coin are the Republicans, who are still in a shambles after splitting their vote, but mainly led by Theodore Roosevelt again. Now, he gets himself painted as a war hawk, and he sometimes is, but when the war breaks out, he advocates neutrality. However, very quickly, there starts to become a a very general sympathy developing for the allies in this war. Some of this is the governmental differences, the democracies of France and Britain, uh, you know, on one side opposed to the militant authoritarianism of Germany. The Germans here don't help themselves. And to get into a little bit of a background with the Germans' initial plan here, just a bit, the Germans have a problem with geography. They have Russia and France on two different fronts, and they're going to fight a two-front war. So their plan is to quickly knock France out before Russia can mobilize. Now, the problem with this is their plan to knock France out, the quote-unquote Schlieffelin plan, has them getting to France by going through Belgium, violating Belgium's neutrality. And this is where the Germans don't help their case. What's known as the Rape of Belgium The Germans will take and round up civilians on the pretext of guerrilla acts, and they'll shoot men and women and children. There will be looting, there will be rape, there will be deportations into hard labor camps. So very early on in this war in America, there are very strong sympathies for the Belgians and also France as well. As it is clear, Germany looks like the aggressors in this war because they're the ones that are doing the invading into these democratic friendly nations of America. This support starts to grow the strongest in the circles that that the Roosevelts swam in, the rich East Coast elites. Um, But it was really far too small of a segment of society to overturn the desire for neutrality, no matter how bad the Germans behaved. It's really going to take a series of pushes to get us in this war. The first comes in May of 1915. The ocean liner RMS Lusitania is steaming from New York to Liverpool. Almost 2,000 souls on board, also with ammunition in the cargo hold for the British war effort. This ship, which is, think of a Titanic-like luxury liner, is just off the southern coast of Ireland when a German U-boat closes in and slams some torpedoes into it. It sinks in 18 minutes, killing 1,198 people on board, including 
128 Americans. Again, the Germans really don't help themselves by not being very apologetic about it initially. Germans go with the line, hey, it had weapons on board. We warned you Americans not to be going on British ships. Sorry. And immediately the American press will will seize upon this and there will be these fabulous political cartoons of, of this event. Oscar Caesar uh, is one that I loved. It's called Out of the Depths, and there's this skeleton wearing this German spiked helmet rising out of the ocean carrying a trident, and pitted on this trident like a stuck fish is the Lusitania. It is after the Lusitania that Ted Roosevelt Jr. says people across this country start realizing the gravity of the situation, and a counterpoint to neutrality really starts to coalesce largely around something Ted's father has been calling for all along. This uh, idea of a of being prepared, the preparedness movement. The idea is, if we had been sufficiently strong, if we had been truly a great military power, Germany never would have dared fire at the Lusitania. Now, Theodore Roosevelt always seems to be one step ahead of the country. After the Lusitania, he is ready for war right then and there. But the rest of the country still isn't quite there yet. But it does push a a significant portion of the country into this spirit of preparedness. And in the summer of 1915, Roosevelt, with the assistance of his old friend and war buddy, and current Army Chief of Staff Leonard Wood organizes a series of camps around the country aimed at offering American men some basic military training and maybe giving them the potential to become officers in a time of war. Now, Theodore Roosevelt, in in his perfect world, would have loved for these uh, camps to get some national funding to become these big national programs, but At the time, that was still not politically feasible. Even after the Lusitania, Woodrow Wilson was not having anything of it. So what you got were these privately funded, all-volunteer camps where a bunch of rich people came out for the summer to learn how to be a soldier. The most successful of these was in Plattsburgh, New York, where both Ted and Archie attended training. Now, it was very basic training, But what Ted stresses is this wasn't a bunch of elites playing toy soldiers. Ted says, quote, We all took it very seriously. At one end of the company street, you would see two prominent middle-aged businessmen trying to do the manual of arms properly, rain dripping off them, their faces set like the Day of Judgment, crowned with grizzled hair, end quote. And I'm not sure if it's because he's older, maybe it's because... He's not in college classes anymore, and he actually likes doing this kind of thing, but Ted excels at it. He takes it very seriously, and he does very well at these camps. And Ted's starting to show just a little bit of glimmer of what he could be. Now, the camps, especially Plattsburgh, were successful in providing that basic military training and will provide a basis of men the Army will call on to be officers when the war comes, but it pushes the political situation forward too, because Roosevelt is harassing President Wilson in the papers, calling on him to do more. Now, it won't work, although Roosevelt doesn't get 
his war, it does push the country to do something, and on 3 June 1916, Woodrow Wilson will sign the National Defense Act. Now, this act is hugely important in two ways. It effectively created our modern National Guard, which before this were really a collection of state militias. They varied wildly on uh, level of readiness, and uh, they really had no standard structure. This act authorized federal pay for 48 days of drill per year and 15 annual days of training, and it also authorizes the president to call up and federalize the National Guard for emergency. The other big impact this act had affects yours truly here. It attempted to formally, through a national initiative, do what the Plattsburgh camps did on a volunteer basis. It was to establish a nationwide Reserve Officers Training Corps, or ROTC. Many colleges and all of the land-grant colleges had some military training as a basic requirement to attend college, but this act formalized this process in a way to get several years of training come out the other side commissioned as an officer. And thanks to this little piece of legislation, I'll receive my commission through ROTC. I remember walking through Thatcher Hall, Oklahoma State University. There was this black and white picture on the wall. It was the first year of ROTC after this uh, piece of legislation. I believe it was 1917. And somewhere right around where T. Boone Pickens Stadium is, uh, there was this open field full of cadets, like thousands of them. They were there because of this act. Now, even though there's enough political will uh, in the U.S. to better prepare, there still isn't enough to get us into this war, especially as the war drags into 1916, and it looks even worse. When this war broke out, there was the myth of the short war, and and essentially many people thought it was going to be over rather quickly. By this point in 1916, you're starting to see people fall into the myth of the long war, the forever war, this idea that this war is just not going to end, it's just going to keep going. By this time, trench warfare has thoroughly settled into the Western Front, and they've started fighting these enormous, months-long battles that chew up men and material, places that are now synonymous with World War I, names like the Somme and Verdun. Uh, At Verdun, the French and Germans combined will have about 800,000 casualties over the course of this battle. And it's not just the numbers, it's the scale of death overlaid over a concentrated area. I have these great reference books. I have one set, uh, the West Point Atlas of, of Wars, and I have one for World War I. Now, it's hard to kind of determine where this battle stops and where it starts uh, in terms of geography, like how close do you actually need to be for you to be in the Battle of Verdun. Now, it's not a, a perfect match, but as best as I could kind of gauge, if if you look at how many people were casualties in this battle, overlay it with the size of the battlefield, it is roughly the size in, in population and in geographical size of, of the city of Indianapolis, like the actual city, not the extended metro or anything, just the actual city of Indianapolis. Imagine everyone in Indianapolis, man, woman, children, Killed, wounded, captured, missing, 
within nine months. Just just gone. The Americans are, are watching these battles and they're just shocked and disgusted and they want nothing to do with it. Andrew Carroll wrote this wonderful book called War Letters, Extraordinary Correspondence from American Wars. From his World War I chapter, he has one from a German-American woman named Mrs. Dunkert. And she wrote a letter to that women's suffrage pacifist I mentioned earlier, Jane Addams. And in her letter, Mrs. Dunkert is begging Jane Addams to keep up her struggle to keep America out of this war. Mrs. Dunkert writes, quote, We are, through, through God's, God's grace, the parents, the parents of two big of healthy two boys, big and healthy it is when, boys. with motherly pride, I look at them that my heart is wrung at the thought of all those mothers, not alone in Germany, but in all the warring countries, who have to send forth these treasured tokens of God, either never to see them again, or else get them back crippled, or blind, or demented. The thought of this is making my own joy in my boys appear almost like a crime to me. Oh, dear Miss Adams, is there no way out of this fearful nightmare? Must nations go on killing each other by the thousands, though their own feelings are revolting in doing it? Is there nobody and nothing that will stop this terrible slaughter and save our poor stricken sisters what yet may be saved for the one or the other? End quote. Mrs. Dunkert was looking for an ally to stop the war, and her best bet is in the White House, where President Woodrow Wilson has done his best to ignore Theodore Roosevelt and is up for re-election in 1916. Now remember, it's probably only because of Roosevelt that he's in office anyway when T.R. split the Republican ticket in 1912 with his Bull Moose Party. In 1916, Theodore Roosevelt rejects running again and he decides to throw his weight behind the Republican nominee, Supreme Court Justice, and pro-preparedness candidate Charles Hughes. Wilson will campaign on the slogans of America First and He Kept Us Out of the War. Now, because Roosevelt has decided to sit this election out, that Republican ticket is not split anymore, so Wilson has a much tougher time. And this is just a aside here, but it's a wild election. And and I'm sure you've never heard of one of those before. But the Republican candidate, Hughes, he jumps off to this early commanding lead, and he picks up a lot of the big East Coast states, New York, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Illinois. Those four states alone at this time are about half of the electoral count needed to win. Now, it takes a lot longer for the votes totals to get in from out West. Newspapers start calling uh, the election. Some of them start calling it for Hughes. There's a story which is probably a myth, but I really hope it's true uh, that Hughes went to bed on election night happy, believing that he was the next president. The next morning, a reporter calls to get Hughes's reaction to the news and is told, I'm sorry, the president is sleeping, to which the reporter shoots back, well, when he wakes up, tell him he's not the president. I, I Again, that's probably a myth, but I really hope it's true. It's such a great story. Now, what the news reporter wanted a reaction to was over the next couple days, those states uh, that the papers had called for Hughes actually went for Wilson. And finally, two days after the election, and California goes for Wilson by about 3,800 votes, which is about 
one third of 1% for the vote total in California, re-electing President Wilson, who promised to keep us out of the war. No doubt thrilling Mrs. Dunkert and millions of American mothers like her. Now, Roosevelt, uh, who has criticized the Wilson administration publicly, but privately in letters, he starts to criticize average Americans for not seeing what he sees. He calls it provincialism. Out in the middle of nowhere, these Americans bury their heads in the sand. Ted, in a slightly harsh but probably accurate summation of the problem, writes to his brother Kermit, quote, The people we need to convince are the people who have never seen an ocean let alone a ship like the Lusitania, and have no idea of Europe. If the Germans were torpedoing hay wagons filled with wives and children of those farmers we could convince them, if the Germans were raping and burning and plundering through Iowa and Alabama the way they have through Belgium, we could convince them. End quote. Now Ted paints a powerful, if not ridiculous, picture of the things that would have to happen to get America in this war. And he, like his father, is disappointed that people don't see things the way he sees it. And as it stands, nothing seems to change their mind. But we see here one of those kind of crazy butterfly effect moments where events thousands of miles away will lead to decisions by a select few that are going to mean those rich former president's sons in New York will find himself fighting side-by-side with those poor farmers from Alabama in the trenches of France. It all starts with the weather in Germany in 1916. For two years, the situation on the German home front had deteriorated, and now we get to see how many wrenches you can throw into a modern economy before it starts to shut down. Now, that first wrench is kind of baked in. When the war starts, millions of men who uh, were at work are now soldiers. Some of these men were farmers. So now you're taking some of your most productive members of the workforce out of the workforce. You're going to have to retool and revamp your industry, uh, reallocate resources so you can start making these weapons of war. Then because you decided to fight a country that has the greatest navy in the world, they blockade your ports from the first minute of the war. And any food that you're going to import is now gone. The food situation is already not good going into 1916, and the government is doing all these things in Germany to try to control prices and rationing. The word of the day is ersatz, which is German for substitute. They'll do all sorts of things, like roasted acorns will be a substitute for coffee. Sawdust will start being added to bread to stretch it. Uh, They'll be cutting milk with water. And all those things sound terrible, but Germany could always count on the indomitable potato. Except in 1916. You get a very wet year followed by an early frost that causes the potato harvest to fail, precipitating what Germany will call the turnip winter. Because that's all they really have to eat is turnips. And just to give some scale on how bad this turnip winter is, I I did a episode, uh, Angels Above Thee, on the strategic bombing of Germany in World War II. And we talked about how devastated those German cities were. And anywhere from maybe 300 to 500,000 people were killed in those bombings. 
What's crazy about the German food situation in World War I is at least that many people, maybe as many as 750,000 Germans, will starve to death in World War I. There's a famous line that has been attributed to multiple people, something to, to the effect of society is only nine meals away from chaos, anarchy, revolution, what have you. The Germans come out of the other side of this turnip winter. They have problems with food riots. They have socialist communist elements in their society that they're worried about, um, possibly trying to overthrow the government. And so the people in charge of Germany really don't want to test that phrase that society is only nine meals away. So they know they have to do something. They're going to have to gamble. And in the middle of the turnip winter, their head of their naval staff, a guy by the name of Admiral Henning von Holzendorf, this guy's crunching numbers on the British shipping capacity and economy and what the Brits need to survive. And he writes a memo to the guy in charge of Germany, the Kaiser, Wilhelm, telling him that this war is headed for general exhaustion of all parties and will be a disaster for Germany if they don't win it in 1917. And there's only one way to win it. They have to knock the British out of the war. The only way to knock the British out of the war, this Navy Admiral concludes, is by unleashing the submarines, the U-boats, in unrestricted submarine warfare. This is the kind of warfare that they had tried before the Lusitania, and they had backed off when America had threatened. Well, if they can reinstitute this submarine warfare, this admiral believes that he can get the Brits to, to sue for peace in five months. Now, Holzendorf does tell the Kaiser that pursuing this unrestricted submarine warfare will likely bring the U.S. into the war, but the reward outweighs the risk. You see, Holzendorf is gambling. He is planning on getting the British out of the war by the 1st of August, 1917. He reasons in that amount of time, America won't be able to get enough people into the war to contribute. So the Germans look at this situation and they accept that America is probably going to come into this war at some point. It's likely inevitable. It's a function of time. Now, America joining the Allies is bad for Germany, but it's going to get exponentially worse every day, every week, every month that goes by and America gets mobilized, gets its industry going, and it's going to get harder and harder to win. So some people in the German government start looking for things they can do to mitigate the Americans entering the war when that inevitably happens. Now there's a guy in the German Foreign Affairs Office that comes up with this plan and he sends a telegram and this telegram becomes famous. It's named after him. It's a telegram he sends from Germany to the German ambassador in Mexico. And it's an offer to the Mexican government. It's called the Zimmerman Telegram. It says, quote, We intend to begin on the 1st of February unrestricted submarine warfare. We shall endeavor, in spite of this, to keep the United States of America neutral. In the event of this not succeeding, we make Mexico a proposal of alliance on the following basis. Make war together, make peace together. 
generous financial support, and an understanding on our part that Mexico is to reconquer the lost territory in Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. The settlement in detail is left to you. You will inform the president of the above most secretly as soon as the outbreak of war with the United States is certain, and add the suggestion that he should, on his own initiative, invite Japan to immediate adherence and at the same time mediate between Japan and ourselves. Please call the President's attention to the fact that the ruthless employment of our submarines now offers the prospect of compelling England in a few months to make peace. Signed, Zimmerman. Now, the Zimmerman telegram is a secret coded telegram that's sent from Germany across the transatlantic cable, of which there are several. Now, Germany doesn't have one anymore because at the start of the war, the British cut it. But the U.S. had been letting Germany use the American cable, you know, as a way to keep the back channels open, as ways to talk about peace. Now, the Germans, boldly, I guess because they had no other ways to do it, hand this message encoded over to the American ambassador, which is like asking a police officer to deliver a package for you with drugs in it. Hey, please send this over to our guy in Mexico and see if he agrees. What the Germans don't know and the Americans don't know is the British are not only monitoring the American diplomatic channels, but they've also got the key to the German diplomatic codes, and have the Zimmerman telegram decoded in about a day. And I wish I could have been there to see their faces when they decoded it. You know, this is the golden ticket moment. You know, there there must have been, you know, British people running around, I got a golden ticket. Now, after the British decode this, there is some deliberation about how to present this to the Americans without looking like we James bonded your cable, but they eventually give this telegram over to the Americans. There's a U.S. government internal deliberation about how to release this to the American public without letting the Germans know that, hey, the British are reading your mail. The American newspapers will first publish about the telegram on 1 March 1917. There's back and forth about whether it's real or not, uh, because there are Americans that wouldn't put it past the British to make something like this up, you know, kind of a a 1917 version of, of fake news. But all that quickly dries up because like two days later, Zimmerman himself will come right out in what sounds to me a stereotypical matter of fact German statement and say, yes, yes, we sent it, but I hope you All understand, you know, I said we were going to try to keep you neutral. And, you know, giving Mexico those states back, that's just a contingency. It's not personal. This is just business. You know, Ted had complained if the Germans could only torpedo wagons of the provincial pacifists in America, they would change their minds. The Zimmerman telegram will paint that picture in their minds. Using Mexico, even a theoretical use of Mexico by Zimmerman here is the worst thing he could have done. Because less than a year before, 
the Mexican revolutionary, Pancho Villa, perhaps angry at America for helping his rival, possibly looking for supplies, maybe both, rode into the town of Columbus, New Mexico on a raid. He gets into a huge firefight with U.S. troops stationed there. He'll burn the town. He'll kill some civilians before retreating after taking heavy casualties. Pancho Villa wasn't part of the Mexican government, but it didn't matter. The Mexicans didn't seriously consider Zimmerman's offer, but it didn't matter. If you're one of those provincial pacifists living in Texas that Ted ranted about, you may not understand what a U-boat is. You may never understand free navigation of the sea. But you understand Germans trying to get Mexicans to fight you. At a time when anti-Mexican feeling was very high, I mean, at the time, there are still living Mexican-American war vets. The Germans had touched the one hot wire, and the change in the U.S. almost overnight is startling. It doesn't help that in the month the telegram is announced, six American ships are sunk. And now it seems like everyone is paying attention to what's going on on the oceans. On 2 April, President Wilson goes before a joint session of Congress and asks for a declaration of war. The 20th century is often called the American century. It was our coming out party. In my opinion, that really starts with this address. This is the famous, the world must be made safe for democracy speech that's going to set the tone for American foreign policy ever since. You can argue all day about whether we've held up our end of the bargain. You can point out the hypocrisy of Wilson's words when Jim Crow reigns in America. But you can't deny the powerful message Wilson's sending, not just to Congress and America, but to the rest of the world when he finishes his speech like this. Quote, It is a distressing and oppressive duty, gentlemen of the Congress, which I have performed in thus addressing you. There are, it may be, many months of fiery trial and sacrifice ahead of us. It is a fearful thing to lead this great peaceful people into war, into the most terrible and disastrous of all wars, civilization itself seeming to be in the balance. But the right is more than peace, and we shall fight for the things which we have always carried nearest to our hearts, for democracy, for the rights of those who submit to authority, to have a voice in their own governments, for the rights and liberties of small nations, for a universal dominion of right, by such a concert of free peoples as shall bring peace and safety to all nations and make the world itself at last free. To such a task we can dedicate our eaves and our fortunes, everything that we are and everything that we have, with the pride of those who know that the day has come when America is privileged to spend her blood and her might for the principles that gave her birth, and happiness and the peace which she has treasured. God helping her, she can do no other. Quote. This is a momentous occasion. This is the first time, really, uh, I have done the previous podcast on the wars uh, against the Barbary Pirates, we had done our fair share of meddling in Latin America. We've played Empire uh, after we beat Spain in the Spanish-American War. But 
we have stayed out of Europe's affairs ever since our founding. And that is changing here. Congress votes on 6 April 1917. In the Senate, the vote is 82-4, 6 against, 8 abstaining. you got to remember Hawaii and Alaska aren't states yet. In the House, it's 373-50 to 50 in favor of war. And the happiest man in America is Theodore Roosevelt. And here we can see one of those things that make me admire this man. You can call him a warmonger, but you cannot call him an armchair general or a chicken hawk. You know, someone that pushes for war, but then finds a way to get out of it when the war comes. A chicken hawk. Roosevelt goes to the White House to see President Wilson. There's some legislation being tossed around Congress to authorize the president to raise four divisions of volunteers, and Theodore Roosevelt, at 59 years old, overweight, still feeling the effects of nearly dying in the Amazon on a research expedition, he's supposed to lead one of these divisions. Rough Riders 2.0, getting the old gang back together. Now, Theodore will go to the White House, hat in hand, and it's amazing that he even goes. And it's even more amazing that Wilson hears him out, given all the trashing of Wilson and his policies that Theodore Roosevelt has done in the press. T.R. will try his best to get the president to go along with his plan, and Wilson will be very cordial and politely will turn him down. And there's this wonderful little story that I hope is true, but after meeting with his arch nemesis, Theodore Roosevelt's being ushered out of the White House and will turn to uh, one of Wilson's cabinet members and say something to the effect of, I don't understand. After all, I'm only asking to be allowed to die. And then Wilson's guy turns to Roosevelt and says, oh, did you make that point quite clear to the president? Now, there will be some grumbling that this is political, but I don't think that's the case. The United States has the benefit of watching this horror show of a war unfold for almost three years now. It's not all theory anymore. Wilson's pretty well informed, at least his generals are, what is required in this war. And U.S. volunteers aren't going to cut it anymore, which the U.S. has traditionally relied on since our founding. And that's another reason I wanted to tell this story, because we're going to see American Army 2.0 rolled out through Theodore Roosevelt Jr.'s eyes here. And I say 2.0 because, in my opinion, there have been three versions of the U.S. Army. And some of this is oversimplifying, but, you know, my first version, the longest version, lasts from the start of our country's founding to 1917. In general, you have a small standing army that in a time of war is supplemented by volunteer units. You see mostly blue uniforms. You see uh, regiments as the building block of, of the army, kind of the backbone of the army. And it is characterized by frontier warfare for the most part. Army 2.0 is going to last from, you know, 1917 to 1972. Uh, the building block of this army is, is not the regiment anymore. That's too small. It's now the division, much larger unit size. Uh, you start to see uh, camouflage uniforms, the force becoming more and more professionalized. You know, war is both an art and a science. And, and this is the time when the science side of war is going to go on steroids. One of the biggest steps to building this new army will be the Selective Service Act of 1917. 
All males, initially 21 to 30, later expanded 18 to 45 years old, will have to register for a draft because the military is going to need to grow to fight this war. At this time, the U.S. Army is about 300,000 men, more than half of that in the National Guard, and that size force gets chewed up in about a couple days in, in heavy fighting on the Western Front. So the military leaders are creating plans to draft 4 million men and send at least a million of those to France. In the meantime, President Wilson has promised to send an American division to France by June, just a couple months away and the clock's ticking. The division is the kind of base maneuver unit in this war. It's normally about ten to 15,000 soldiers on the Western Front under the command of a general officer. It has its own artillery and engineer and logistical assets to keep it running. The problem with Wilson's promise is at this time, the U.S. doesn't have any divisions. We've only really had divisions during the Civil War. But at that time, they were very ad hoc organizations. They weren't really standardized. The U.S. Army is about to standardize a division. And it's another one of those important transition points into becoming Army 2.0. The U.S. Army has operated on the regimental structure, about 1,500 troops under the command of a colonel. These are units that are convenient for a frontier kind of army. These regiments are spread all over the country. The best and most modern concentration of these troops are on the southern border, under command of General John Pershing, who had just spent the last year in Mexico trying to find Pancho Villa. These units are ordered to get on trains and converge on Hoboken, New Jersey. They are drastically under strength to the point that every time these trains stop in these small towns, the sergeants are going out into these towns and saying, Hey, hey, anyone want to go to France? Small Texas town, no one's ever been outside the county. Who wants to go see France? You know, do I get a gun? Do I get a uniform? You know, don't worry about that, son. Just get on the train. We'll we'll figure it out when we get there. And so it, it starts to rapidly swell with these random people. And, and when they get to New Jersey, they get organized into the first division that we are going to send to France. And because we don't like to reinvent the wheel in the army, we call it the first division. And now gone from the, you know, war atlases are the names of generals next to it. And from here on out, you're going to see the numbers, the first division, the second division, the third division, etc., etc. Now, raising a division and getting enough men together to stand around each other to be qualified for a division is one thing, but putting people in charge of it is another America is going to need about 200,000 officers alone to fight this war. And they're going to require significantly more training. At this time, the American education system is typically very poor. So the educated men, people who uh, can understand some of these complex things that are going to go into war, are going to be quite needed. And here's where Ted comes back into the story. President Wilson names the guy chasing Pancho Villa, General John Blackjack Pershing, as the man that's going to lead the American Expeditionary Force, the AEF, to France. 
Now, Pershing was really the only choice. He's got his recent experience in Mexico, which isn't much, but considering they were using cars and airplanes, that's the closest to the Western Front combined arms as America's going to get in 1917. And just to check in where we are in history and how fast things are changing, when Pershing graduates from West Point, his first assignment will be fighting the Apache in New Mexico and Arizona. And he's about to be thrust into the most intense combat the world has ever seen. He's 57 years old. He's one of those kind of perfect military bearing guys. You know, people that serve with him talk about his presence and just being around him. He's uh, very handsome. He's got a rigid, straight posture, the perfectly neat mustache and a jawline that looks like it's carved from granite. He's got a long, distinguished career, which includes fighting with Ted's father in Cuba. And this is important because Ted's wife, Eleanor, will say this is the only time that she remembers Ted asking his father for a favor. Because he wants to be one of those first Americans to go to France. Theodore Roosevelt will write to Pershing, asking if he'll take Ted and Archie, who hold reserve commissions as a major and a captain, if he'll just take them on as privates, at least as privates, to serve in the AEF. Now, Theodore knew Pershing would be unlikely to say no, because as president, Roosevelt had promoted Pershing from captain to brigadier general, skipping three ranks and about 800 other officers. Now, using your favored position to get something you want is against, you know, kind of the Roosevelt ethos, the code of honor, and Ted will do something similar once again later in life, and he'll explain it away to his wife as it, it's okay to pull strings and ask favors if you're wanting a job more dangerous than the one you had. Pershing, of course, accepts Ted as a major and Archie as a first lieutenant. I wouldn't necessarily count it as a political favor, considering how many officers this army is going to need. Ted and Archie had spent two summers at Plattsburgh in training. It might not have been what your West Point cadet gets over four years of school before becoming an officer, but it was a hell of a lot more than the average American, so they were needed. Now, their father will lament and complain about not being allowed to go to France, but he was the patriarch of an entire clan that mobilized to go to war. Going back to the old chicken hawk thing, Theodore Roosevelt had for some time been advocating we should be at war. He's not going to be one that holds back his family. Far from that. By the time they have a going away party for Ted and Archie, Theodore was working with his old friend, Cecil Spring Rice, the British ambassador, to secure Kermit a commission in the British Army. Kermit had been away in South Africa when all this Plattsburgh fun was going on, and so he was unlikely to be made an officer in the American Army. Quentin, the baby, who has grown up from his White House sandboxes and is now a young man, he at this point in his life, he really comes across as this Tony Stark, Iron Man kind of character. He's funny, witty. You know, he's the kind of guy that will find an old motorcycle, take it apart, rebuild the whole thing. And in, in keeping with this Iron Man theme... Despite his notoriously bad eyesight, he's going to go into the Air Corps and he's going to start flight school. 
Theodore Roosevelt's daughter, Ethel, is married to a surgeon, Richard Derby, who is going to France to serve in the medical corps. And despite Theodore Roosevelt's grand announcement that none of the women of the family should go to France, they all do. His daughter, Ethel, will go to France to assist her husband as a nurse. And I believe she gets to the war before any of the other Roosevelts. Ted's wife, Eleanor, has an aunt who owns an extra house in Paris. I know it must be nice. Uh, Ted told her they hear rumors that there's going to be a prohibition put on soldiers' wives going to France. So uh, she actually rushes and, and gets there as fast as she can. She'll get there only a month after Ted does. And she sets up kind of Roosevelt headquarters in her aunt's house in Paris. A kind of a place where all of her brothers-in-law, her sister-in-law can come and go and, and rally together um, throughout this war. And then Eleanor goes and she volunteers for the YMCA, of all things, which during this war will act as kind of like the USO. It's crucial for organizing uh, the creature comforts for soldiers, games, activities, places soldiers can go and get warm, get the hot coffee and the donuts. Theodore Roosevelt will be very proud of this fact. A reporter will tell Roosevelt, you know, President Wilson's son's going to France to volunteer for the YMCA, and and Roosevelt, with his four sons going into the fight, will reply, oh, really? So is my daughter-in-law. This is a family... I wouldn't say they were excited to go to war. Theodore Roosevelt was excited to go to Cuba. They're not quite there they, they do know how, how bad it is, but they're excited to do their part. These are the Roosevelts. They're the adventure junkies. They're built different, as, as the kids would say these days. Don't let this fool you to think that this was normal. This was maybe closer to what Europe did when they went to war, you know, with the parades and the singing in 1914. The world is not singing anymore, and the Americans know what is in store for them. Future Army Chief of Staff, Secretary of State, and Secretary of Defense, George C. Marshall, is a 36-year-old captain and the operations officer for the 1st Division. He's watching as thousands of men, these first Americans, are, are loading up on these ships to leave America to go fight. He says, quote, The night was dismal, with a drizzling rain. Most of the laborers about the docks and all of the onlookers beyond the iron fence bordering the street were German. The average stevedore looked as though he were a member of the crew of some German submarine. It was not a very encouraging prospect. About 3 a.m. I was standing at the window of the shipping office with the newly appointed commander of the port of embarkation, watching the endless column of infantry pour slowly through the courtyard into the covered docks. Except for the shuffle of their feet, there was little noise. It made an impressive and forbidding scene. After a long silence, I remarked, The men seem very solemn. In a rather dramatic fashion, he replied, Of course they are. We are watching the harvest of death. End quote. On 20 June 1917, at 29 years old, with three children and enough money to make him a multimillionaire, Ted boards the USS Chicago and sails for France. It was his seventh wedding anniversary. And dispelling the false notion, very different than World War II, that Americans show up in Europe, you know, you think of a liberation, you think of people kissing. Marshall says that when the men arrive in France, 
the people of the town turn out to get a look at the Americans. You know, America is this young country now, practically an infant still in 1917. It's the first time Americans are going to travel abroad in mass. And Marshall says when they disembark, it's quiet. In these towns, there are hardly any men. Everyone's lost someone they know in the war. And everyone is wearing black. So basically the whole town has this air of a funeral. And just really quickly, we're going to run down why and, and show where we are at in this war. And there was this real hope that the Allies could win the war in 1917. The Allies were keenly aware of the problems going on in Germany and that this unrestricted submarine warfare that brought the U.S. into the war was an act of desperation. But the plans the Allies had in 1917 quickly unravel. And this is a very quick simplification, but some dominoes are about to fall that are going to impact how this goes for the 1st Division. And it all starts with a French offensive. Now, there's always this feeling for needing the offensive because the Germans are on French soil. You know, it's kind of the push out the invaders kind of thing. There's this new guy in charge in 1917. His name is Robert Nivelle. He gets the job because of these small but very effective counterattacks he executes the year before at Verdun. Nivelle is a popular guy with the politicians, and he convinces them and the army that he's kind of got this winning combination. If they can just follow his plan, he can break this trench warfare all open, and even better, he's going to give them a guarantee. If it doesn't look like it's working in 48 hours, they can call the whole thing off. He launches his offensive on 16 April 1917, shortly after the U.S. declares war, and long story short, it doesn't go as planned. And those two days that he guaranteed spread into three weeks, and Nivelle is removed from command by the middle of May. And this disappointing loss, kind of the wind out of the sails moment, precipitates what is called the French Army Mutinies. And you cannot overstate what this war does to the French. France is going to lose more people as a percentage of their total population than any other major power in this war. And for context, this war for France is the equivalent of a a 9-11 happening every two and a half days for four plus years. That's how many people they're going to lose. 1.4 million men. Liberal democracies can't take that kind of strain without cracking. And these mutinies come in in different forms. Sometimes it's a unit ordered to the front and the soldiers decide, you know what, I'm just going to stay here and I'm going to loot some of this local food and alcohol and get drunk instead. You know, it's not like mutinies uh, that we're going to see in in Russia, um, where officers are are being killed by their own men. And these French units aren't surrendering or, or letting the Germans just walk through their lines either. But what this means, what these mutinies mean, is the French are not going to be capable of offensive operations for about a year. Nivelle's replacement, Marshal Pétain, is going to come in and and try to stitch this army back together. And France is going to go to their allies and say, you have to keep up the pressure on the Germans until we can get our act together. The British launch an offensive in Belgium in July. Initially, it shows promise, you know, close to a breakthrough. But again, it bogs down in November in this horrible, muddy battle called Passchendaele. The Russians on the Eastern Front do their part. The February Revolution 
occurs and, and the Tsar abdicates and this provincial government called the Kerensky government is going to launch an offensive in western Ukraine and it ends the Russian army. After this, Russian soldiers will be shooting their officers and in this chaos it will eventually lead to the October Revolution. The Bolsheviks will take power during this revolution and enter into negotiations before the end of the year to get out of this war. The Italians, a a minor allied power who had for two years fought Germany's main partner in this war, Austria-Hungary, in northeastern Italy along the Isonzo River. They've had 11 battles of the Isonzo River for minimal gain. The Austro-Hungarians call in the Germans in 1917 and utilizing some new tactics we'll talk about later. They shatter the Italian lines at the Battle of Caporetto. And they advance 40 miles in six weeks, which is flying on a front that's barely moved for two years. The situation is so dire, France and Britain have to scrape the bottom of the barrel for 11 divisions to, you know, package together and send to Italy just to stabilize the situation because they're worried about Italy dropping out of the war. So again, all that is part of of the calculus that's going on in Pershing's mind. In the space of six months, he is supposed to create an American army that can fight and stand up in this slaughterhouse. And he's walking into a disaster, and he's under intense pressure to hurry up. He's got a couple problems. The organization, remember the division is, is the standard unit of maneuver, and Pershing and his staff on the boat over pretty much decides what a division is going to look like. They decide it's going to be 28,000 soldiers, which is double the size of a French and a British division. It's got great staying power in combat. And you have all these personnel shuffling about, you know, filling in the ranks. So many times they'll go to an experienced sergeant and say, hey, congratulations, there's this new thing called a machine gun platoon, and you're the new platoon leader. You're an officer now. Congrats. And then they'll go to the smartest privates and say, hey, you know, your your sergeant just became a platoon leader. You now have his old job. And people start shuffling about into these new positions, figuring it out as they go along. Another problem is a pre-war platoon looks a lot like a Civil War platoon does. You know, you have your riflemen in your squads under a sergeant, under a platoon leader, an officer, and a a platoon sergeant. Well, now war is different. You have individual specialized positions. You have automatic riflemen. You have grenadiers. You have trench mortars. All the way down to the orderly who knows how to take care of the carrier pigeons that are used to send messages back to the artillery. All this requires training and to make it work individually and as part of a team. Finally, you have what America has had in every single war, and it will probably continue to happen. You start to figure out who doesn't belong in this war, specifically people who don't have any business leading others in war. And if you're lucky, you find out who these people are before the shooting starts. And one of the people that figures it out is the commander of the 26th Infantry Regiment. And he decides that, you know, one of his subordinates, one of his battalion commanders, isn't up to the task. Someone asks for a name, and just like that, Major Ted Roosevelt Jr. becomes the commander of the 1st Battalion of the 26th Infantry Regiment. Ted's battalion is quickly termed 
the White House Battalion, and it's kind of like, you know, football at Harvard all over again for Ted. He's the president's son. That must be why he jumped all these regular army captains and majors that had more time in service. He doesn't deserve this. His daddy is obviously calling in a favor. That's not true, but that's what they said. But it doesn't really bother Ted, and he jumps right into the job. He says in the early days, the only thing that exceeded their seriousness at training was their ignorance. Ted readily admits he is a neophyte, and he might be, but he went after this job with a a vim and a vigor expected of a Roosevelt. He is organizing training. He always likes to turn things into competitions. Everything is a competition, and the men quickly grow to love him. He tries to break up the monotony of training and find things for his soldiers to do. He wire back to Eleanor in Paris and have her pick up things like tobacco and soccer balls and boxing gloves and soft drinks for his men. He'll pay this out of his own pocket. Eleanor, always entertaining generals, will smooth somebody one night and say, Hey, hey, can you load some of this stuff for me and and send it to Ted? Ted's father is ecstatic and and so proud of his son at this point for becoming a battalion commander. Theodore Roosevelt is making about the equivalent of $600,000 a year today, mostly writing articles for papers. It's money he didn't need, and, and he spent a good portion of it equipping his son's soldiers with boots and blankets and clothing. Now, Ted and the rest of the division will press through training, and it won't go as well for some of the other divisions that are going to come later. But Pershing does a pretty good job easing the 1st Infantry Division into this war, even if Pershing's not always happy about it. He's got this idea that Americans don't do trench warfare. Americans fight open, aggressive warfare. And he shows up to watch a battalion exercise, and it happens to be Ted's. And included in this demonstration is an assault on trenches as they had been taught by their French colleagues who were there helping them learn how to fight this war. This goes against Pershing's open warfare ideas. And he'll go to the division commander, the 1st Division, General Siebert, and Pershing's going to ask him, you know, how'd how'd that go? Anything we could improve? And I'm sure there might be a few young leaders listening to this podcast, maybe some cadets out there. But if a general asks what could go better? What could you improve upon? Never do what General Siebert did, which was basically say, you know, it's pretty good. I don't see anything wrong with it. Make up something. (laughs) Find anything. Say something that you can improve upon. Don't do what he did, because Pershing flips. He doesn't really like Siebert anyway, and he's one of those people that Pershing's going to fire here shortly. Pershing's under enormous pressure. Uh, There's a concept called amalgamation, which the French and the British are pressing him on. That's basically, you know, just give me your soldiers and I'll put them in my units. I'll I'll put them under British officers and, and let them fight that way. We just need your bodies, which is one thing President Wilson says you absolutely cannot do. So Pershing's having to, you know, keep the French and British at bay from taking his men all the time. And this demonstration really sets him off. He's got Ted in his sights now, and Pershing, who is the closest thing to God in the American army, will start dressing down some of the leadership, and no one speaks up except for this young Captain Marshall, who will come to the aid of his division commander and 
Ted and basically say, General Pershing, you don't understand the problems we're having, like uh, with organizing this training, with getting enough weapons, with constant moving and, and personnel shuffles. And Pershing was the kind of guy who kind of likes someone to stand up to him sometime. And he isn't happy about it, but he accepts Marshall's explanation and he carries on. The 1st Infantry Division continues through their training, and, and in November 1917, they finally actually put American troops into the line. They're battle space owners. They start rotating battalions through the front line for 10-day tours, and it's a quiet sector. This is perfect for the Americans. They learn how to do the simple things that are hard in war, things like how to get hot food up to the men in the line, which, according to Ted, is invaluable. When the Americans report to these quiet areas, the Americans are reporting directly to a French regimental commander and an American commander as the observer, kind of of learning. They have all these rules about what Americans can do and not do yet, and they're not allowed to go into no man's land. No man's land being this area in between Allied and the German lines. During the day, unless there's a large attack or you have a death wish, you stay in your trench or your hole or your bunker. You don't go into no man's land. But at night, all these things happen. Most common is something called trench raids. Usually a platoon-sized element, about 50 men, will sneak across no man's land, sometimes under the cover of artillery bombardment, and they'll cut through the barbed wire, they'll jump into the enemy trench, kill as many as they can, grab a few prisoners, maybe destroy a certain machine gun position and then they'll withdraw back to their own lines to counteract trench raids you send your own patrols out into no man's land at night to do a movement to contact or set up an ambush and the french don't want the americans to do that they're saying no you're not you're not ready yet about 4 a.m on the morning of 3 november rapid and a heavy german bombardment will hit the american lines and marshall describes investigating the area a few hours later, quote, Here was conclusive evidence of a German raid, and in a dugout a short distance beyond, we found the bloody traces of a fight. The missing men had all been stationed in this particular section of the trench. Another breach was located on the other side of the angle made by this first line of trench, and there were other traces of fighting. The bodies of the first three Americans who fell in the war, Corporal Gresham, Private Enright, and Private Hay, were just being removed from the ground where they had fallen. One of the three had his throat cut, and this was seized upon by some as evidence of German brutality. End quote. The Americans are starting to work out how this war is going to be fought. Back in America, T.R. will read about the first Americans going into the trenches, and he'll know that this means his sons. And here we see a bit of a different man. We see a father, a grandfather. What this war has done has knocked the romanticism out of out of war. It's a different war than what he fought in. Theodore Roosevelt will write to his sons and basically implore them, hey, after a certain amount of time, after you get into the front line, I understand why you want to do it. I would want to do it too. But after a certain amount of time, if a spot opens up in the staff, maybe a few miles behind the line, something you could do, you know, staring at a map in a, in a chateau, maybe take it, please take it. 
Don't think you have to refuse just because it's a less dangerous job. Theodore Roosevelt is not going to get what he wants. Americans are back in the front line in March of 1918. Archie's sector gets under a heavier-than-usual artillery barrage, and rather than duck and cover, Archie, believing an attack is coming, starts running along here to there. Here they come, boys. Get ready when he's hit. His left arm and leg will take shrapnel. It will take hours to evacuate him. Eleanor, who is truly the unsung hero of the Roosevelts in France, she's an incredible woman. Apart from running the YMCA, she's teaching soldiers French on on the side. She's sending the things to Ted. Quentin is now in France, and, and he was very sick, and she had just nursed him back into health. Well, she immediately leaves Paris and tries to go see Archie in the field hospital. She lobbies the military to have him sent to a hospital in Paris where she can look after him. And Archie there will have two operations on his arm. Eleanor will take care of him, but he's going to be declared 100% disabled by these wounds and eventually sent home. Theodore Roosevelt had described his fighting in Cuba as his crowded hour. About the time that Archie sees his crowded hour, it becomes clear it's not just his hour, but the world's crowded hour. Because the same month, Russia will finally sign the Treaty of Brest-Liftosk with Germany and will end the war on the Eastern Front. This is a disaster for the Allies. Because this means Germany is going to be able to transfer about a million men, those experienced troops, to the Western Front. And for the first time, they're going to have a numerical advantage. It's not all sunshine and rainbows for the Germans. Their main ally, Austria-Hungary, is disintegrating, not just as an army, but a nation. The Germans are still having internal problems. That blockade is still constricting their populace. They're signs of unraveling, and the Americans are ramping up their army. There's 300,000 men in France now, and they'll soon be arriving at a rate of 10,000 every single day. And Germany figures with Russia collapsing and their ability to use those soldiers now on the Western Front, they have this small window of opportunity where they have to throw everything in. They take their best troops, they take them out of the line, and train them in these new special tactics developed on the Eastern Front. They're called Houdier Tactics. And instead of these days-long artillery bombardments, they're going to go for a short, rapid bombardment to help conceal the location of the attack. These artillery plans will be very advanced. They'll have them hitting enemy headquarters, counter-battery fire, a rapid front-line creeping barrage. They'll use lots of gas, persistent types, in areas where they want to block, non-persistent types, in areas where they'll want to travel through. Once this bombardment ends, it won't be long before the line of troops is upon you, and they'll be heavily armed stormtroopers with grenades and flamethrowers and machine guns that are maneuvering across the battlefield. And they'll be using fire and maneuver and bounding. They'll ignore enemy strong points and they'll find the weakest areas and they'll break through with the goal of getting to the open country before the enemy can get replacements there and plug the gap. That is the key to these new tactics. 
At this point, Germany still has a Kaiser, but they're basically a, a military dictatorship. And I've heard the historian Richard Faulkner refer to them as the gruesome twosome, which is Paul von Hindenburg and Eric Ludendorff. Ludendorff masterminds a series of offensives against the West to end this war. Now, it's kind of unclear what the strategic objective of these offensives are, but the ultimate goal is to destroy the British army, which he regards as the only truly effective fighting force the Allies have. This first offensive he's going to launch is called Operation Michael. It's designed to hit right where the British and the French lines connect along the Somme River. And anytime you see an area where lines connect like that, there's usually a point of weakness. Early on the morning of 21 March 1918, Operation Michael kicks off with a five-hour artillery bombardment with over 3.5 million shells along this narrow front. Now, this kind of bombardment takes preparation, takes time to move the guns and the ammunition in place, and when you do that, it's it's hard to hide your intentions. So many of the British kind of expected there was some big attack coming. They knew. And this point reminds me of the book World War Z. Some of you may have seen the movie. Uh, it, it's fine. Sorry, Brad Pitt. But the book is outstanding and goes much farther than the movie had time to do. And you get a look at a, a zombie apocalypse from multiple different perspectives. But one of my favorite scenes from the book is astronauts in outer space at the International Space Station. And they have all these advanced instruments that allow them to you know, zoom down with their scopes and see the zombie apocalypse happening all over the world. And they're just watching helpless as one by one, all these places are overrun by the zombie horde. That was on my mind when I read this quote from British officer Douglas Wimberly, who's in a headquarters communication bunker when this attack kicks off. He says, quote, I was asleep in my dugout, but I was woken to hear the earth thudding all around me and the noise of exploding shells. I remember a certain amount of shivers going all around me because we realized that the great attack had started. The only thing to do was listen to the signaler trying to get through to the different units. He would say, hello, Seaforth. Hello, Seaforth. Hello. Line cut to Seaforth, sir. Hello, Gordons. Hello, Gordons. Hello, Gordons. Line cut to Gordon, sir. When the attack started, we had communication with about four or five different headquarters, but quite soon they were all cut. And I remember in the darkness at the bottom of the dugout feeling a rather sense of isolation. End quote. Adding to the zombie apocalypse nature of this attack, the Germans are aided by this incredible thick blanket of fog and coming out of the mist using these advanced new tactics where they're bypassing, you know, pockets of resistance, the British soldiers will find themselves running into Germans already in in their lines, already behind them. One German soldier in the assault tells a story of hearing artillery firing and, and he'll walk up to the British who have no clue the Germans were there. You got to remember artillery pieces are 
far behind the line, usually safe from direct attack, and the British have no clue the Germans have already penetrated this far. And he walks up behind one of the British officers, puts his hand on his shoulder, and tells him to cease fire. That's how quickly and unexpected this German penetration occurs. The casualties on both sides are horrendous. Luckily for Ted and the Americans, they are just at this point becoming combat ready in the French eyes and are beginning to move to their assigned area. But just because the 1st Infantry Division isn't there, it doesn't mean Americans aren't already in this fight. Like the men, patriotic fervor hit the women of America too. Shirley Millard was an affluent young woman from Portland, Oregon. When the war kicks off, with no nursing experience, she volunteers to go to France as a nurse. She had just got to France when this Operation Michael starts, and it's her first week as a nurse, period. She writes in her memoir, hauntingly titled, I Saw Them Die, quote, The big guns roar. The line is only eight miles away. The earth trembles and the flimsy barracks shake with each report. It sounds like a bad thunderstorm. A hundred bad thunderstorms. Flashes from cannon fire light up the cracks around the shuttered windows. I'm too busy to be frightened. The blood-soaked clothes and bandages begin to give more easily under my learning fingers. As I work on one man, bathing the great hip cavity where a leg once was, a long row of others, their eyes fastened upon me, await their turn. Gashes from bayonets, flesh torn by shrapnel, faces half shot away, eyes seared by gas, one here with no eyes at all. I can see down into the back of his head. Here is a boy with a gray, set face. He is hanging on, too far gone to make a sound. His stomach is blown wide open and only held together by a few bands of sopping gauze which I must pull away. I do so as gently as I can. The odor is sickening. The gauze is a greenish-yellow. Gangrene. He was wounded days ago and has been waiting on the ground. He will die. End quote. Shortly after Operation Michael begins, Ted Roosevelt and the rest of the 1st Division are ordered to head north of Paris, where the breakthrough has occurred. George C. Marshall describes everyone at this point as being jubilant, you know, kind of a, now's our chance, we're going to show them, you know, this training was a a pain in the rear, now it's time to, to get to business. But Ted writes about something very different. He, he talks about how he'll never forget the march up to the breakthrough, how the spring was in the air after a long and cold winter, the trees were budding, there were wildflowers everywhere, and as they were marching towards the sound of the guns, going the other way was the stream of French refugees leaving their homes with everything that they had, trying to get away from the battlefield. He says, quote, Unless one has seen it, it is impossible to visualize the battered village the column of refugees that starts at each great battle and streams ceaselessly towards Paris and southern France, the apple orchards and gardens torn beyond recognition, the desolation and destruction seemingly impossible of reparation. After about 10 days, this German offensive starts to run out of steam. Casualties, physical exhaustion of going 40 miles, largely walking. This is not a, 
you know, mobile fight. And that's one of the problems with the First World War. You can't really get into an enemy's rear and turn the flank and get into, you know, his supply areas because everyone's walking. I mean, think of how tired you would be going four miles a day. And you have to remember, you're not walking four miles a day. You are fighting four miles a day, which is very different. And the ground you are actually covering during that four miles of advancement is probably multiple times that you are fighting. You're going back and forth. You're carrying ammo and water and and casualties here and there. You're bounding under fire. You're shooting. You're putting on your gas mask. You're taking it off. It is incredibly tiring. And to do this over and over for 10 days, eventually you're just going to run your force into the ground. On top of all this, the Germans are doing much of this breakthrough over the old Somme battlefield of 1916, which truly looks like a, a moonish hellscape. That is, when you think of World War I, that is the one that comes to mind. Just absolutely devoid of vegetation, and and the attack just kind of starts to grind down. But it, it's still the biggest gain anyone has seen on the Western Front in an attack. And they are a hair's breadth away from breaking this war completely open. At one point, supposedly, the French and British lines had separated and, and there was nothing standing between the Germans and, you know, open country. Marshall says at this point there was a threat of the French, you know, swinging their left flank back and abandoning northern France and, and the British swinging back their right flank and running back to the channel ports. Marshall says the worry is so great that the Germans are about to break through that around-the-clock counter-preparation fire is occurring. This is normally something you you reserve because it's so taxing on your guns, but it's a artillery strike that you kind of keep in your back pocket until right before an enemy attacks. You hit key road junctions, places that you suspect his troops are assembling, and that way you break up his tempo. But they're firing around the clock up to 30,000 artillery rounds a day and burning through supplies, just trying to keep up this fire just to hamper the Germans enough to slow them down. Marshall says the American counterfire is, is so extreme that every day that they're doing this, at least one of their artillery pieces explode. You can't put a gun through that many artillery rounds without stopping before, you know, it just wears out on you. And through extreme measures like this, the line holds. You start to see signs of, of cracks in, in the German units. Remember, these German soldiers committed to this fight were the elite divisions. They're a little bit better fed than the rest of the army and even much better fed than anyone in Germany. And... These men are, are still hungry. On top of it, they have been, in many cases, lied to by their officers. One of the lies that they had been told was that the Americans are, are, are not really coming and will be surprised as, as they are captured by Americans at, at certain times. They have been told, hey, you know, we got it bad, but the Allies have it a lot worse. You should see the other guy kind of thing, and the Germans will be shocked to come across these vast supply dumps in the Allied rear areas. And in some cases, they will stop and eat and drink 
On top of this, many Germans were starting to get sick with an early iteration of the Spanish flu. And this first great offensive peters out on 4 April with the deepest penetration at the small French village of Cantigny. Now, Cantigny is not much, but it sat upon a high ground that kind of juts into the Allied lines and provides a nice little observation post for German artillery. The Americans in the 1st Division get word that their first act as a division, first true offensive action, is to take the village of Cantigny. Now, this will not be a huge battle in terms of World War I, but it is a very big deal to the Americans. It's a big deal to these men. It's a big deal to their leaders. It's a big deal to the French and the British who need to see something out of the Americans. It's a very big deal to Woodrow Wilson. He has given Pershing wide latitude because he really doesn't care about how this war is won. What Wilson really cares about is the peace process and being able to influence it because Wilson is a big idea guy and he's got a lot of thoughts and opinions about what the world is going to look like after this war is over. I mean, he cares about this so much, this is jumping ahead, but Wilson is going to hand carry the Treaty of Versailles home from Europe and deliver it personally to Congress. That's how much this guy cares. And to influence that process that's going to happen down the road, Americans need to make their mark on this war. They need to at least be able to get to the point where they can show they're the equals of the French and the British who have a three-year head start and, and millions of casualties already. Before this attack on Cantigny, Pershing will get all of his officers together and tell them, quote, Our people today are hanging expectant upon your deeds. The future is hanging upon your action in this conflict. You are going forward, and your conduct will be an example for succeeding units of our army. I hope the standard you set will be high. I know it will be high. End quote. All eyes are on the Americans as they move into the Cantini sector. Now, you got to remember how deadly the World War I battlefield is, and the enemy doesn't give you a chance to rest. You know, they're, they're marching up to the line. Germans aren't going to give them a free pass to just get ready. The Americans actually take 10% casualties just moving up into position to get ready to launch this attack. And just to set the scene, this sector was safely behind French lines just a few weeks before. It's not the complete moonscape yet. You know, it, it's a bunch of wheat fields and, and small villages. There are no readily made trench positions that have been occupied for years. So as as part of relieving the French units, these Americans are digging. They're digging as much as they can, as fast as possible, to kind of build out a trench network just to get a spot to, to jump off from in this attack. In the days leading up to the attack we see another added feature that I think makes this, you know, Army 2.0. This is the new science side of warfare, you know, getting a shot in, of, of steroids in the arm. This isn't Lee at Gettysburg looking out over Cemetery Ridge and just believing, feeling that 
the Union might be weak in the center, so he sends Pickett to do his charge. Hey, did a little right up the middle to get massacred. No, this war is even more deadly than that. The Americans are sending out patrols every night to capture prisoners, to interrogate them. George C. Marshall himself will nearly get shot up by a machine gun crawling up to uh, take a look at the German lines because he's the guy who's going to create this plan. And what leads up into this attack is planning and preparation that every single current American soldier or Marine would recognize. This attack will primarily be carried out by the 28th Infantry Regiment of the 1st Division. And for a few days before the attack, the 28th is secretly removed from the lines, taken to the rear to practice, to to rehearse. This is thoroughly modern. Right now, as you listen to my words, somewhere in a, in America, a, a soldier or Marine is, is sweating or or freezing their asses off as as they practice this exact kind of thing. The Americans outside of Cantigny are are setting up sand tables, which is a, a big terrain model of their objective. Every single individual unit is practicing their piece alone, and then they combine it together with their attachments, with the flamethrower units, the twelve French tanks that are going to be added to the attack and they have a whole regimental walk through where the big wigs stand there watching the whole thing i was reading uh, matthew j davenport's first over there and i was shocked uh, to learn that officers and sergeants were shown lantern slides which is like a early version of a projector i guess and they were shown aerial photographs of the objective you know this technology is is old but these are all modern concepts that we still use today. And a lot of this is in Marshall's doing, and it's forging this American army. The plan Marshall will devise is not a complicated plan. It is a uh, something we would call a spoon-fed plan. There's not a lot of wiggle room for the units to decide what they want to do themselves. And it's probably a good thing because this is the first real American attack, and George C. Marshall is, is really smart, but there's not a lot to it. The assault itself will be three battalions of the 28th Infantry Regiment spread out into a line. The first wave of infantry assault troops and the 12 tanks will go forward. The second wave will be machine guns. And then the final wave of soldiers will be bringing up construction materials, flamethrowers, and ammo. All this following an artillery barrage. With the idea being the first wave will bowl over Kentingi area, push through the village to the other side to be joined by the machine gun teams and the guys carrying the barbed wire and and the pickets and they'll start to dig in and establish a new defensive line. On the morning of 28 May at 4.45 a.m., the American and French guns quietly move into position for the attack. And there will be a, a quick boom, a quick smattering of shells. And we talked about how simple... The plan was to attack Cantigny, but by this stage of war, the really complicated part is the artillery, and it's complex because it has to be, because artillery is what kills everyone in this war, and it pains me to say this as a former infantryman, but the British General J.F.C. Fuller had said this a few years ago, artillery conquers, infantry occupies, and that is very true in this war. Now, I said it was complex. Those first rounds they fire are just to register the artillery. When you move artillery from some point to another, you got to fire a few rounds just to make sure you're on target before things get really serious. And because artillery is so important in the offensive, 
you can't move them into an area until just before under the cover of darkness or the enemy with their planes flying over will spot them and say, hey, the Americans are planning something here. So these new guns that have just been moved into the area fire off a few shells. The Americans have spotters. They radio back to the artillery, tell them if they're on target or not, and the artillery has an hour to adjust. At 5.45 a.m., the real bombardment begins. The Americans are mostly firing 75s and 155s. Those are artillery pieces denote the internal diameter of the barrel in millimeters. If you're screaming at me to put those numbers in in American, uh, that's about 3 inches and 6 inches, respectively. The larger that number is, the bigger the shell is, the bigger the explosion. The French have brought some big guns to this fight. 280 millimeter, which is about 11 inch. That's a naval gun, essentially. The sustained fire for these guns is a 12-pound high-explosive shell that can fire off about three to four rounds a minute, and they're going to fire for 55 total minutes. And remember, that's just one gun. There, there are hundreds of them, and they're not just firing willy-nilly. Every battery has a purpose. Some are hitting enemy strong points, the trench line, village of Cantigny itself. Some are hitting road junctions the Germans might send reinforcements along. Some are firing counter batteries, so they're targeting suspected locations of the German artillery. And Marshall, as the lead planner observing this battle starts, says, quote, The morning of May 28th broke clear, and the preliminaries of the attack were carried through with precision. The general artillery bombardment opened with a tremendous roar, and Cantigny itself took on the appearance of an active volcano, with great clouds of smoke and dust and flying dirt and debris, which was blasted high into the air, end quote. After 55 minutes, the general bombardment ends and the artillery shifts into a rolling barrage or, or a creeping barrage. The officers will blow their whistles and 4,000 Americans will leap out and they'll follow very closely behind this barrage that just moves ahead every couple minutes. So the idea is you just stay right behind it. Number one, it makes it hard for the enemy to see you and shoot you. And number two, this is just going to roll over the Germans like a wave. And as soon as it passes, before they can, you know, make a defense, the Americans are right on top of them. One of the first men in this wave will be an American correspondent, James Hopper. And he describes the artillery barrage as literally plowing the ground ahead of them. Now, as this attack unfolds, the village in Cantigny itself will be pretty much pummeled, but on the left and right flanks outside the village, the Germans put up a pretty stiff resistance. PFC Anton Jurach of Carn City, Texas, was hit by a machine gun bullet, and he'll be the first American killed in this battle. The Americans in the center roll over the, the badly shaken Germans in the village itself, and by 9.30, it was all over. The Americans start furiously digging in. There's an old Ben Franklin saying that nothing is certain but death and taxes. And it really should be amended to death, taxes, and a German counterattack. Because in two world wars we've had with them, there is always a German counterattack. Ted's battalion ends up on the right flank of Cantigny holding a position in a forest called Cantigny Wood. And the Germans will launch four attacks over the next couple days, and they're worse than the actual battle itself for Cantigny. Those who are not 
hit by artillery fire. Marshall says they will be untouched but become, in effect, casualties. Quote, a three-inch shell will temporarily scare or deter a man. A six-inch shell will shock him. But an eight-inch shell, such as the 210-millimeter ones, rips up the nervous system of everyone within 100 yards of the explosion, end quote. This is what the term shell shock comes from. This visible shaking of men who have been under these brutal artillery bombardments. And you can see this. This is the era of cinema. You can go on YouTube and see men shaking uncontrollably. It's just brutal what it can do to you. Ted describes how brutal the artillery was at Cantigny. Quote, We took and held the town, or rather the spot where the town had been, for it would be an exaggeration to say it was even a ruin. It was literally beaten flat. End quote. One of the problems Ted and the 1st Division faces, every single day they have some of the French artillery units that are attached to the 1st Division keep getting taken away from them. So they were having less and less artillery to support them. The old saying, the enemy always gets a vote, applies here. The Germans have launched another major offensive. The first one was Michael that had driven all the way to Cantigny. They had already launched a second one called Georgette up in the north in Flanders on the French and Belgian border against the British. And this one that keeps scraping the French artillery away from Ted. This third one is called Operation Blucher York. It hits the French to the south of where the 1st Division is at Cantigny. And again, for a few days, this looks like it might be the kill shot, that the Germans are going to break through to Paris. And if you thought I glossed over the brutal artillery at Cantigny, Eleanor Roosevelt is about to bring the human element roaring back into the picture when she says this about the new German offensive, quote, In, in Paris, Paris, we, we heard, heard the, the guns, guns clearly, clear. and at night and at saw night flashes saw. like summer lightning in the north. On June 2nd, a Sunday and my day off, I was sitting writing letters when the door opened and Ted walked in. I've never seen anyone look so ghastly. His face was scorched and inflamed, the whites of his eyes angry red. He was thickly covered with dust and shaken by a racking cough. Why are you still here, he demanded. Don't you know the Germans are advancing on Paris? You must leave at once. End quote. Ted had been gassed at Cantigny. At one point, apparently there was a jelly-like component to some of these gas shells, and they had hit him right in the eyes, and he was temporarily blinded. He'd heard about the German offensive, and as soon as his battalion had been pulled off the line, he hustled down to Paris to get Eleanor out. He makes all these arrangements to have her leave if the Germans get too close. He has his wife clean him up. His baby brother, Quentin, actually shows up, and they both go to visit Archie, still recovering in that hospital. That night, he tells Eleanor he can't lie down since he's been gassed. She has to prop him up on all these pillows, and he was able to get a little sleep through spasms of coughing. you got to just shake your head at, at what this war is doing to human bodies. The next morning, Eleanor begged him to stay, to get treatment, but he laughed at her and told her, quote, now that I know you're all right, I'm fit as a fiddle, end quote. And with that, he was back to the front. Now, in all my reading about Ted, 
this is just one of many moments in his life where you want to reach through the sands of time and shake him and go, Ted, what are you doing? You've done enough, man. Lie down. Listen to your wife. Take a break. But then he, he wouldn't be Ted. And then he wouldn't be a Roosevelt. All the Roosevelt boys, Ted, Archie before he was wounded, and Kermit, off fighting in the Middle East, they all at different times receive admiration, sometimes admonishment from peers and superiors for their bravery that at time borders on recklessness. They do this without a second thought. It's just who they are. The youngest, Quentin, is now finally going to get into the fight. And he's the last in the fight, surely because he has chosen to do something that guaranteed to make him last. Remember, he's that Tony Stark-like character. He wanted to be a pilot. And as bad and unprepared as the U.S. Army ground forces were before this war, the American Air Corps was way worse. It's pretty sad we were the nation first in flight with the Wright brothers 15 years before this. We have done little since then, and we have a pitiful excuse for an Air Corps. At the time that Quentin enrolls, the U.S. has only about 35 pilots and 55 incredibly outdated airplanes. And so there's just not a lot to work with. And and Quentin had been languishing in France. He had been sick for a little while and had been on admin duties kind of out of the war. And it's been driving him crazy, but it wasn't his fault. The French and the British have their own air forces. They have planes and they have pilots. And the Americans just send over a bunch of pilots really without the planes. Planes are in serious short supply. They are mostly wooden, and the war effort needs a constant drip of high-quality wood to make these aircraft. And the problem is so bad that the U.S. Army will create units called Spruce Squadrons. My great-grandfather actually served in World War I. He was drafted in Oklahoma, and what did the Army need him to do? They put him on a train up to Oregon to a Spruce Squadron and taught him how to log. That's how big of a problem this is. Thousands of men are kept at home just to turn trees into materials to build airplanes. Quentin finally gets his orders for combat in June of 1918 and is stationed at Orly Airfield, which is now an airport just south of Paris. And from what we know about Quentin, he was an average pilot, but he was, like his brothers, absolutely fearless. And it's a good time to set the scene on what Quentin is walking or or rather flying into. To give you an idea of what these planes looked like, most of them were biplanes. It's a it's a wing on the bottom and the wing on the top. A few of them were triplanes or or three wings. Think of the, you know, uh Fokker DR, which is what the Red Baron flew. You may have heard that name. They had open cockpits exposed to the elements. When this war kicks off, pilots will initially wave at each other and then go back to taking pictures and doing their reconnaissance. Didn't take long at all for pilots to start shooting at each other, first with pistols and rifles, if you can believe it. And then pretty soon they start to figure out how to put machine guns on these things and really start dogfighting in the the way that we would know dogfighting now. By the time Quentin enters the fight, 
These machines are, are much more advanced. The pilots are getting very good. Uh, there are aces, people that have shot down more than five enemy aircraft. These dogfights will be short, sharp clashes over, over the front lines, but speeds with these open cockpits of about 100 miles an hour, which is not a lot for airplanes, but you got to think these guys are born with 19th century minds. Like the fastest things these guys had been on before the war was a horse or maybe a train. Very few of them were actual pilots. Eddie Rickenbacker was at least a race car driver, a famous race car driver before the war. So what to you and me might look like slow motion, these guys in these airplanes made of wood and canvas and open cockpits are just hauling across the air shooting at each other. Bottom line is Quentin is entering a very dangerous world. By the 6th of July, he's in combat and he writes his mother, quote, You get so excited that you forget everything except getting the other fellow and trying to dodge the tracers when they start streaking past you, end quote. Who writes a letter to their mother like that in the middle of a war? Well, Roosevelt does. And a few days later, Quentin's out on patrol when he gets separated from his friends. Quentin recounts in the letter, quote, When I got straightened out, I couldn't spot my crowd anywhere. So, as I had only been up an hour, I decided to fool around a little before going home. As I was just over the lines, I turned and circled for five minutes or so. And then suddenly, the way planes do come into focus in the air, I saw three planes in formation. He continues, They had been going absolutely straight, and I was nearly in formation when the leader did a turn, and I saw to my horror that they had white tails with black crosses on them. Still, I was so near to them that I thought I might pull up a little and take a crack at them. I had altitude on them, and, what was more, they hadn't seen me. So I pulled up, put my sights on the end man, and let go. I saw my tracers going all around him, but for some reason... He never even turned until all of a sudden his tail came up and he went down in a vril. End quote. That term vril just means the German went down in a spin that was later confirmed as a hill for Quentin. Now this occurs deep behind German lines, deeper than maybe anyone sensible would have uh, went. But Quentin is chased back to allied lines by the remaining Germans. News of Quentin's victory spreads like wildfire and gets the reaction you would expect from Theodore Roosevelt, proudly boasting in a letter to Ted, quote, the last of the lion's brood has been blooded, end quote. Quentin shows up in Paris not too long after at his sister-in-law's to visit Archie, recovering from his operation, and to celebrate being blooded in this great bloody war. Blooded he may have been, but examining the circumstances... Quentin had followed three planes back, engaged Germans uh, that outnumbered him three to one, you know, 20 kilometers behind enemy lines. It is utterly Rooseveltian, and it cemented what many had already thought, that Quentin was fearless, but fearlessness often has two faces. If one is, is bravery, the other can be seen as reckless. Only a few days later on 14 July, Bastille Day in France, the Germans were about to launch their fifth and final offensive, the Peace Offensive, 
which will evolve into the Second Battle of the Marne. Quentin is sent out on a patrol over the sector. They seem to have encountered at least seven German planes in the air. The Germans turned and fled into a soupy cloud cover. The patrol broke into this chaotic running gunfight. Lieutenant Edward Buford Jr. was part of that patrol and wrote to his father, quote, I tried to keep an eye out on all our fellows, but we were hopelessly separated and outnumbered nearly two to one. About a half a mile away, I saw one of our planes with three Bosch on him, and he seemed to be having a pretty hard time with them. So I shook the two I was maneuvering with and tried to get over to him. But before I could reach them, our machine turned over on its back and plunged down out of control. End quote. That machine was Quentin Roosevelt's plane. Quentin was missing for two days before the German communique was intercepted by the Allies. It said, quote, After a stubborn fight, one of the pilots, Lieutenant Roosevelt, who had shown conspicuous bravery during the fight by attacking it again and again without regard to danger, was shot in the head by his more experienced opponent and fell at Chamere. End quote. Quentin's best friend in France, Hamilton Coolidge, will write to Quentin's mother and highlight how fast things change in this brutal and bloody war. Quote, It seems almost incomprehensible that Quentin is really gone. At every turn, something reminds me of him. This afternoon, I walked in a quiet wood where Q and I walked and chatted together only a few days before his death. I could almost hear his voice. But still... There is an awful, empty feeling inside. Quint was such a complete person. Not a mere friend who was interesting in some particular way. He was interesting and lovable in every way. No one I ever knew had so many friends from so many different types and conditions of people. End quote. Coolidge will close the letter uh, with a remark uh, about how a year ago they used to hear a joke every so often about yeah, yeah, the Roosevelt boys are going to France, but probably be given cushy staff jobs. Well, no one is saying that now. Through this family tragedy, my mind keeps drifting back to Eleanor. Truly, she is the glue that is holding this Roosevelt gang together in France. She's not just hanging out in Paris at her aunt's comfy house. She's helping run the YMCA, which is a, a huge, important organization. She's working long hours, six days a week. She's teaching soldiers French on the side. She's playing a 1918 version of an Amazon fulfillment center, shipping Ted various items for himself and his, his men. And now to recap what has happened in just a month, you know, Ted has shown up gassed. Archie has had another operation. She loses her brother-in-law. And then in her book, the day before yesterday, she says, this happens, quote, I was sitting upstairs reading, reading when Augusta, Augusta threw open the door, announced Major Roosevelt is here, and vanished. I ran down and saw Ted being lifted out of an automobile at the front door. I tried to ask what had happened, but could make no sound. Ted said cheerily, I got, I got wounded, wounded this morning, and here, here I am. am. End quote. As Ted is being carried into this house, he will lament that if he'd only had a horse, he could have made it through the day at least. They rush around the house and, and carry him upstairs and lay him down. 
Eleanor can't help but notice a tag on his shirt that reads, Gunshot Wound Severe. There will be a lot of running around and shouting by everyone but Ted, who is truly his father's son. He insists he's fine. Eleanor's description continued, quote, He would not not even let let me look look at at his wound, but sat sat in a big big easy chair chair with his his foot foot up and bellowed, I want a hot bath, then I want my dinner. I haven't eaten anything since yesterday morning. I would like some black bean soup, broiled live lobster, steamed clams, wild duck and hominy, rare roast beef and brown potatoes, and buckwheat cakes with maple syrup. But I'll settle for whatever French food you have in the house. house. You can can start start by by bringing bringing me a a quart of champagne. End quote. It doesn't take a smart man to you know, read between the lines here and, and see how delirious Ted is in the state. And as funny and joking as he's trying to be, he's very seriously wounded. Eleanor, among her many accomplishments during the war, can list talking Ted down from a quart of champagne to only a pint. And lucky for Ted, his brother-in-law, Dr. Richard Derby, just so happened to be dropping by. Derby takes one look at Ted's leg. A machine gun bullet has ripped through just above the knee. The wound is full of dirt and bits of cloth. And the good doctor declares, uh, Ted, you're going to the hospital and you might lose this leg. Eleanor, and I feel so much for her here, seeing this war is, is more than the Roosevelt's had bargained for. Quentin had just died. Archie's still in a bad way. And now she's sitting outside the hospital why her husband has surgery. And she describes the scene, quote, Dick watched the operation while Archie and I sat outside and waited. We both hoped, eagerly, frankly, and openly, that Ted's leg wound would be damaged enough to keep him out of combat forever. One of the medics came to tell us the result. When this is healed, he'll be as good as new. I shall never forget the astonished look on his face when Archie said, Gee, but that's tough. And I groaned assent. End quote. And here we have it, another one of the Ted lie down moments, uh, because you have a wife who's hoping you're hurt bad enough that you don't have to go back to this terrible war. It's about this time that Kermit shows up. He has been transferred from the British to the American army, and the three Roosevelt boys proceed to let out that inner child that never really leaves the Roosevelt in the first place, and they proceed to drink and party, and at one point they start an impromptu parade on the streets of Paris, and at all this, Eleanor will feign annoyance at their behavior, but she recognized for what it was. They needed this release. She says, quote, Quentin, Quentin the, the youngest, youngest was gone. Was gone. No, one no one knew how long the war would last. No one knew whose turn would come next. We played around with the feverish high spirits felt only in the shadow, shadow of death. death. End quote. Now, Ted's going to need some time to heal, and it's a good time to zoom back out and see what's going on in this war, because a lot has happened in in this short time. Let's just rewind here. Four days. The Germans had launched their fifth and final offensive on the day after Quentin was killed. This fifth offensive will launch two German armies, one to the west of Reims and one to the east of Reims. This eastern attack is pretty much stopped cold pretty much on the first day. The Western attack, again, led by these stormtrooper shock troops, will find a weak spot in the defenses and break through. And again, for a couple days, it looks a little hairy. They cross the Marne River, and for a few days, 
fighting in three different directions, largely held by a single U.S. division. The 3rd Infantry Division will hold this line. It is here that they receive the nickname the Rock of the Marne, which the division still retains to this day. And this German attack grinds to a halt. Now, no problem if you're Eric Ludendorff. The 5th Offensive was just a another diversion, so he could launch his big attack that he wants to against the British in Flanders. That attack against the British up north is still scheduled to go on. This will be the 6th Offensive. It's named after the Crown Prince of Bavaria, the Ruprecht Offensive, and Ludendorff's still ready to, ready to keep going. But he's got a, a problem. He's got a simple math problem. Before these offensives start, his trench lines were relatively straight. Now, straight lines are are good for trench warfare because it allows you to be economical with your troops. Imagine standing on a football field with a bunch of people and everyone grabs hands and they stretch across this football field. And we find out that, I don't know, it takes 70 people to reach goal line to goal line. This is kind of like the German lines before the offensive. Now, I come along and say, all right, you got to keep holding hands, but I, I bow out the middle of this line and make a couple big curves in the line. Now, you're not going to be able to reach goal line to goal line anymore. This is the German line when the fifth offensive finally grounds to a halt. Ludendorff has two bulges pointing towards the either side of Paris, and this means he needs more troops to kind of man this newly taken ground, and these are troops that Ludendorff doesn't have anymore. And this is really where I have to question if Ludendorff has a handle on what's going on, because from the time that first offensive, that Operation Michael started in March, to the last one that just was stopped in July, he sustained about a million casualties. And remember, these are more likely his his best troops, the shock troops, the ones that were pulled for these attacks. Now, the guy in charge of the French war effort, but really at this point, the entire Allied war effort, think of him as a World War I version of Eisenhower by this point, kind of a supreme commander, is a guy named Ferdinand Foch. And he has been itching to go on the offensive. He's been saving up his troops. More U.S. divisions are are getting to the line daily. He's been waiting. He's had to stand there and parry back these German thrusts. And the Germans get stopped on this fifth drive. And Foch decides he's not going to give them a chance to launch that Ruprecht offensive up north. He's got his sights on one of these German bulges, the most recent one that the 3rd Infantry Division had just helped stop. And Foch is betting that the Germans are exhausted and scraping the bottom of the barrel for troops. And he's right. So on July 18th in the early morning, the Allies launch a surprise attack against the flanks of that German bulge. It's called the Battle of Soissons, or the Ain-Marne Offensive. And it achieves complete surprise, because... There's no multi-hour preparatory bombardment, only a quick rolling barrage right before the troops are on the German positions. Another thing that helps achieve surprise, troops are literally brought in at the last second. Some of them, as this creeping barrage starts, have to run up to, to get close enough behind this creeping barrage. They had been 
you know, quick timing, double timing for some time just to make it to their, uh, you know, starting point to follow this attack on through. The Allies finally have somewhat fresh troops in large numbers because a big part of this counterattack will be American divisions, eight in total. Remember, these are twice the size of a French or British division. The fighting is particularly nasty over some of these ravines. There's a, there's a big one called the Missy Ravine. The Germans had dug in caves to store their ammo, now using them as machine gun positions. It was on the second day of this fighting that Ted was wounded, and he wasn't alone. Pershing had always dreamed of unleashing this open warfare. That's American-style warfare. And at the Battle of Soissons, you know, he gets what he asked for. The battle will rage over five days and is particularly hard on the officers. Ted's boss, the commander of the 26th Infantry Regiment, Colonel Hamilton Smith, was killed. Out of the 96 officers in Ted's regiment, two-thirds were killed or wounded. But the results of this battle were decisive. George C. Marshall writes, quote, The entire aspect of the war had changed. The great counteroffensive on July 18th at Soissons had swung the tide of battle in favor of the Allies, and the profound depression which had been accumulating since March 21st was in a day dissipated and replaced by a wild enthusiasm throughout France and especially directed toward the American troops who had so unexpectedly assumed the leading role in the Martin Offensive. Only one who had witnessed the despair and experienced the desperate resolution when defeat is anticipated can fully realize the reversal of feeling flowing from the sudden vision of a not-too-distant victory. The stock of confidence in America, which had been quoted far below par, was in a day sold at a premium. Wherever American troops appeared, they were cheered and acclaimed by the French populace. Truly, after the fashion so frequently and erroneously described in the American press prior to this time. End quote. Ludendorff is forced to call off the Rupert Offensive on the 20th of July, but if you read his memoirs, this period after the Battle of Soissons is portrayed very differently from Marshall's. Yes, he has to cancel this offensive, and yes, they have suffered a setback, but it's not so bad. It's kind of a, we gave them as good as we got. The troops are tired, but so are theirs, and I doubt they'll make any more offensives. We just need to go on the defensive for a little bit, we'll rest and refit, and then we'll see what we can do from there. He also mentions the American soldiers. Yes, they may be individually brave, but they're not good troops. And this is kind of maddening to read as an American, because he lists all these things and why everything is, is fine, and you just want to scream at him, then why did you lose? You know, what... What you're seeing is, is, is a peek into his mind and the beginning of the coalescence of the stab in the back. This idea that, you know, the German soldiers didn't lose. They were betrayed at home. But more on that later. Ludendorff will finally get a little dose of reality when the Germans are hit with another large offensive, the kind he doesn't think is possible from the Allies, on August 8th. This attack occurs at the other bulge, that the Germans had created from Operation Michael way back in March. Ludendorff calls August 8, 1918, the Black Day of the German Army. This battle, known as the Battle of Amiens, 
will be a combined British-French attack, really spearheaded by very good Canadian and Australian troops. will kick off in the early morning hours in a dense fog. And at this point, we are seeing much more World War II-style warfare. The attack begins with a sudden rolling barrage, followed very closely by 400 tanks and infantry. Some of these tanks are, are the fairly new Whippet tanks. Now, if I tell you to think of a World War I tank, you probably think of the Mark I, this big parallelogram-shaped lumbering monster. Now, the Whippet tank looks much closer to what a World War II tank is going to look like. It has a top speed of 8 miles per hour, which is hauling for a tank in 1918. The Allies will mass aircraft over the battlefield, too, to support, and they'll gain nine miles in in the first day. And, and to circle back to Ludendorff and how out of touch he is, those one million casualties he had sustained in the four months uh, of the great spring offensives, that was not a problem. But this Black Day of the German Army gets its name because really for the first time, large numbers of German soldiers are surrendering or just allowing themselves to be taken captive. Ludendorff says, quote, We had to resign ourselves now to the prospect of a continuation of the enemy's offensive. Their success had been too easily gained. Their wireless was jubilant and announced, and with truth, that the morale of the German army was no longer what it had been. End quote. The Battle of Amiens will sometimes be synonymous with the beginning of what's called the Hundred Days Offensive. Foch finally unleashes that general Allied offensive across the whole of the Western Front. As part of this, Pershing had been working hard to gather more and more American forces in one spot, which is a difficult task because these French and British units don't want to give up these large, striking power American divisions. He'll finally gather enough in the St. Mihiel sector and it's another one of these German bulges that stick into the Allied line. And this is a big deal for the Americans because they finally have enough American divisions in the same general space to form the U.S. First Army. And how far we have come in just such a short time. At the end of May, that American single division had attacked at Cantigny. In July, in Soissons, we had American corps. So three to four divisions together fighting. And here we are in September. We have an American army about to go into attack for the first time. And it's a massive undertaking with nearly 700,000 troops all moving around this relatively small area. And right before we're about to launch this first American army offensive, our, our first kind of out on our own offensive, Marshal Foch comes to Pershing to plan. And he wants Pershing to abandon this St. Miel offensive and take part in his plan to launch this offensive up into the Meuse-Argonne region. Now, naturally, this would require Pershing to stop what he's doing and place his units under French command. And Pershing explodes at this. He, he really gives a, a no-means-no kind of moment to the French. The French and the British had been asking for and sometimes getting American units since Pershing had arrived in France. And he's been 
holding and trying to build this independent American command since he got there. And he just got this taste of what they were about to get, and now he's being asked to give it up. Pershing tells Foch, if you need us that bad, hey, we're going to do this St. Miel offensive on our own. We're going to reduce the German salient, and then we're going to move 40 miles west, and we'll launch that new offensive in three weeks. Foch says, you know, okay, that's impossible. There's no way you can do that, but go ahead. The Americans get a little lucky here. Ludendorff had just ordered the evacuation of the St. Mihiel area. So, you know, anytime you move in this war, it's dangerous. You know, you have to move your artillery out first and then, you know, your soldiers start pulling back. And what happens is the Germans kind of get caught flat-footed. On top of that, some of Pershing's best units are attacking. These are soldiers with good experience, the 1st Division, the 2nd Division, which is half Army, half Marines, the 42nd Division. They're all here at this offensive. And within two days, they've cleared the Germans out of the salient. They've captured 15,000 of them. And within four days, this German salient is completely reduced. Now, the AEF got lucky with the St. Miel offensive ending so quickly, but now it has to transition to Foch's plan. The Germans look at the map and are overextended. Despite their losses, they still have units pretty far west into Belgium. Now, geography, they have quite a bit of room to work there. So they have these deep defenses, these defenses in depth with these outposts with an initial line with just a few troops, a second line 20 to 30 kilometers behind them. It makes breakthrough tough in some ways, but it also allows you to give ground where you need to. And and so the Allies attacking in those areas are going to make some pretty good gains in terms of just sheer distance because the Germans have that room to, to give up. But again, terrain is everything in war, and Foch wants the American army to shuffle 40 miles to the west from where they are now, around St. Mihiel, and attack due north. Because he spots an opportunity. The terrain where he wants the Americans to attack is particularly rugged, and with the course of the River Murs, all three of those German kind of defensive belts they have to be very narrow. They don't have the space to have these 30 you know, kilometer distances between these lines. We're talking all those defensive belts converging in a depth of only about 18 kilometers. And that makes breakthrough, while difficult, possibly more likely. Now, there have been several moments in this war on, on both sides where they thought a breakthrough had happened, and it's sort of a tragic thing. You know, these lives get spent, you know, pushing through these terrible trench systems just to break through, and sometimes they break through in places where it doesn't matter, there's nothing strategic of value, and then sometimes it, it doesn't matter because there's no way to continue on because motor transport and tanks aren't as reliable yet as we'll see in the Second World War. The troops just get tired and and the offensive just peters out. Now this time it's different. You know, about 40 miles north of where the Americans are going to launch this offensive is the strategic hub of Sedan. And it sits astride this main railway linking Germany to those armies that are overextended still into Belgium. Now if you think about this in, in terms of a human body, generally your arteries get bigger the deeper you get into your body, the more protected they are. Ideally, logistics work the same way. You have 
big hubs and stockpiles, you know, miles behind your lines uh, where they're protected and they get distributed to smaller and smaller hubs until you get to the end of the line where, you know, someone tosses a, you know, MRE into your trench. But because of the terrain, this area that Fosh wants the Americans to tack in, this is the equivalent of having, you know, your aorta, the largest artery in your body, like on your wrist. Like it is, it's right there at the surface. Cutting that line is going to make half of the German forces positions untenable. A million men cut off from supplies. This battle shaping up is going to be massive and collectively called the Meuse-Argonne Offensive. Americans will be fighting up two parallel river valleys. On the left flank of the American advance is the deep, dark Argonne Forest. You have the Air River Valley in the center and the Meuse River Valley on the right. Germans have these nice, flat, open killing grounds with these hills and ridges that look over these valleys. So you can see every move and call down artillery. And to get these Germans out, you're going to have to pay the price. Now, just starting this offensive is easier said than done. Like I said, the Americans get lucky that St. Mihiel ended so quickly, but it is a logistical nightmare to transfer pretty much the entire American army from one direction all the way to another starting point and launch them in a different direction completely. Again, a lot of this is George C. Marshall's work. This is his brain power put to the test. He says it's his ultimate test in World War One is figuring out how to move all these troops in time for this offensive to start, which he does. There will be nine divisions in the initial assault, six more in reserve, a total of 400,000 troops, 2,700 guns, over 800 aircraft, and 189 tanks. Most of them finally manned by American crews in the Renault FT-17, which is considered by many the first modern tank. It has a gun in a turret that rotates. The crews sit in the front, the engines in the back. This is uh, really a step forward in tank design. And the Americans are sitting on this giant spring ready to be released. And this final stage of the war is really a who's who of the American army. The future is on full display. Douglas MacArthur is there leading a division. George S. Patton is leading the 1st American Tank Corps. He will actually be wounded pretty seriously in this battle. Bill Donovan, the future head of the OSS, which is the precursor of the CIA, will receive the Medal of Honor for his actions here. In the skies above, the air contingent is under command of Billy Mitchell, who will later become the father of the U.S. Air Force. Finally, legally blind in one eye and barely passable in the other, future President Harry S. Truman is here as an artillery officer. All these troops are equipped and coiled like a spring ready to go. The preparatory bombardment opens at 2.30 in the morning on 26 September 1918. In the three hours of the bombardment, the Americans fire more shells than the North and South did at each other combined for the entire four years of the American Civil War. Aiding the Americans, the Germans expected them to continue that offensive in the St. Mihiel sector, and they were greatly surprised by the sudden shift in American combat power. 
the American Doughboys go over the top after this incredible bombardment and have some initial success, but are stopped cold. Now, there are some reasons for this. In the St. Mihal Offensive, the Americans used their best units. Well, when they had to quickly move and, and start this offensive in the Meuse-Argonne, that means the Americans had to use the troops that were available instead of the troops that were ready. So out of the nine divisions in this initial assault, five hadn't even completed their training yet. Three hadn't seen combat at all. Another reason is they are advancing through the wasteland that was the old Verdun battlefield that is cratered everywhere. There are human and animal remains from years before, unexploded shells and wire. Uh, to give you a sense of how bad it is, this is just two years after Verdun, much of this area that these troops are advancing through are still uninhabited and have been declared by the French government as a red zone. You can't go there. They didn't rebuild their villages here. And it is estimated it's going to take another 400 years for this area to be safe for habitation. That's how bad of an area they're having to move troops and supplies through. Weather doesn't help. It's cold and rainy. And then finally, the Spanish flu has really started to hit the American army hard. On top of all of this, it's not exactly a well-infrastructured place, and there are only pretty much three roads that the Americans can supply 400,000 troops through. The attack quickly bogs down. All this before we even get to the fact that the Germans still have some really good units willing to put up a fight and are in good terrain and good defensive positions. Now, George C. Marshall is unwavering for his praise of Pershing during this time. He says Pershing is everywhere. He's rallying his troops. He's beating up the division commanders, telling them to move their headquarters closer to the front lines so they can get a better understanding of the situation. But Pershing is under tremendous pressure. One problem is he has all these people, allied generals, politicians, random American muckety-mucks in Paris that decide to drop by and see how the American attack is going. They take one look around and they start telling people that it's chaos, and it generally is. The Prime Minister of France, a guy by the name of Clemenceau, is one of these people. He drives up from Paris and is caught in this massive traffic jam of you know, wounded coming one way, supplies going the other. He doesn't even get close to the front before turning around in anger. And the word starts to get out that, hey, the Americans aren't ready for this. They can't do this. George C. Marshall says this is absolutely ridiculous. He says there's nothing they can do about this road situation. And that the people saying these things really just want an excuse to divide up the American divisions again and take them for the French or the British Army. He says a lot of this is also politics. With the end of the war so near, the British and the French need to discredit the Americans so as to weaken President Wilson's position when the time comes to have the peace talks. Because remember, that's what Wilson really cares about. He has a vision of peace in the future, and it is different than what the British and the French think. He needs the American army to give him some street cred here. Three days into the offensive, Pershing calls a halt, and it's the right call. The troops are all over the place. He's got to reconcentrate and reorganize, get the wounded out, get food up to the troops. They're going to find a lot of troops at this time AWOL, 
pretty far from where they should be, you know, ostensibly, hey, I'm just out here looking for food. The Americans are going to take a look at how they're fighting during this pause. Their corps are made up of four divisions, and these divisions are fighting really their own fights. They're not fighting together. They're not fighting as a, as a corps. And beyond the initial bombardment, there really wasn't a plan for artillery support once the attack began. The corps aren't really coordinating resources, and you just basically have these bunch of individual division-level fights. Now, this pause in combat allows some good things to happen. Some of those best divisions that fought at St. Mihail are now ready and, and reconstituted, and Pershing can throw them in the fight. Another tool Pershing exercises is his ability to fire people, which he is undoubtedly the best at in the American army at this point. George C. Marshall says he has a pretty constant stream of friends and acquaintances, you know, stop on the way home and explain to him what happened and try to get some sympathy for their side of the story, which he said was inevitable. The Americans simply had no time to determine or detect if officers especially in these untried units, were up to the task. It's, again, one of those rolls of the dice. You don't know how leaders will hold up in combat. You can guess, you can prepare yourself, you can train, you can put people in the right situations, but you really don't know until it happens. And like any other job, one day you can be on top of your game and one day you could not. Except that instead of you know, breaking something during your shift or, or messing up a presentation to a client, when you make mistakes here, men die. That's why you identify those that can handle the stress and lead men in combat, and that's why they're so valuable. And as the 1st Division goes back into the fray, they're going to get one of their good ones back. After Ted Roosevelt's successful operation, he was shuffled off to teach at an officer school, you know, well behind the front lines, just a, a teaching gig. And his wife will just so happen to run into a mutual friend that knew Ted at this officer school. And she quotes his friend in her book as saying, quote, Yes, Ted has left, he said. He was doing all right here, getting a lot of useful knowledge and also teaching a lot of people. He should have had sense enough to stay put and not keep fretting like an idiot because he thought he was in a soft job. General Frank Parker is now commanding the 1st Division. He called Ted on the telephone and asked how his leg was. Of course, Ted said it was entirely well, the liar. The general said his old regiment needed a commanding officer, and Ted could have the job if he was able to come at once. Ted was off like a shot. He still walks with a cane and is certified for limited duty only, but now he's AWOL. I hope he gets court-martialed. End quote. Ted fully recognized his AWOL status, but quipped that they don't court-martial you if you go AWOL in the right direction. And again, here, my heart goes out to Eleanor. You know, what could he be thinking? Hasn't he done enough? And it reminds me of Rocky One. You know, Rocky goes out to prove to himself and everyone else that this match with Apollo Creed isn't just for a show. And he gets all the way to the last round, gets knocked down, and Mick is yelling at him, stay down, stay down. And, you know, maybe other men would. But not the son of Theodore Roosevelt. That's an awful big shadow. Now, Ted and the rest of the Americans are going to luckily get some help here. There's a uh, recent movie out, which I haven't seen, but I heard the title and it perfectly describes Germany at this moment in the world. Everything, everywhere, all at once. 
So let's quickly go around the world. The Western Front German army is bending and heading for breaking, but it hasn't happened yet. And Ludendorff is hearing of these little acts of indiscipline in his rank-and-file soldiers, and he's blaming it on these soldiers picking up things that they see on the home front, which is also not in a good place right now. Now, so much at this time and looking back on World War I is focused on the Western Front that we forget it is a world war. So the big break occurs in Macedonia, or what's called the Salonika Front. There are British and French units there fighting alongside Serbian and Greek allies in northern Greece. They've been there for a while holding a a defensive line. But in September, they're finally unleashed, and it's a big deal. This area is important for Germany. Germany has pretty much three allies at this point. They have Austria-Hungary, Bulgaria, and the Ottoman Empire. And they all have problems. Now, Germany is a tier one power here. It would be generous to label Austria-Hungary a tier two power, maybe at the start of the war, but probably not now. And then the Bulgarians and Ottomans at this point may not even be on the scale. But bad allies are better than no allies, and mainly Germany can squeeze them for stuff. So Germany has been using you know, a limited number of troops to kind of prop up these areas. And in the past, they could spare them. But by this point in the war, they don't have any more to spare. And when these Allied troops explode from their defensive position on 15 September, the Bulgarians take it right on the chin, and they start to fold almost immediately. There are mass surrenderings and desertions. It starts a rebellion in Bulgaria. And by 29 September, Bulgaria is dropping out of the war. Now, if you look and see where Bulgaria is and where this attack happens on the map, it cuts the Germans off from the Ottomans in Constantinople, which it's not yet Istanbul. The British forces take off towards Constantinople, and it's clear the Ottomans will be dropping out soon. Germany is also occupying Romania, where they get a ton of their grain and what little oil they can get from there. Now it's at risk. Ludendorff is greatly distressed by this, to the point that some believe he had a nervous breakdown here. And he goes to his his partner, uh, Paul von Hindenburg, and they take it to the Kaiser and say, we have to end this war. The rumor at the time was he supposedly told the Kaiser he couldn't guarantee the Western Front would hold for more than a day, uh, something which he hotly denies in his memoirs. The recently appointed Imperial Chancellor, Prince Maximilian of Baden, will send a note directly to President Wilson asking for an armistice and a peace based on Wilson's 14 points. Now, you might remember hearing about these 14 points in school. I won't read them here, but, you know, some big ones, essentially uh, a redraw of borders, you know, creating independent states like Poland, self-determination for, for peoples, and for Germany to get their troops out of Russia, Belgium, and France. These are terms that the Germans had vehemently rejected at the start of the year, how the mighty have fallen. And what essentially starts here is an exchange of notes between the Americans and the Germans going back and forth, trying to figure this thing out, all while men continue to fight and die. The battle in the Meuse-Argonne has started to turn into a running gun battle, 
the Americans are starting to break through with the Germans retreating and the Americans trying to catch up to them, you know, before they can occupy another defensive position. Ted describes this time as, quote, All night long the men plowed like mud-cake specters through the dark, some staggering as they walked. Once they had to move single file through our artillery, which was to follow in our rear. Often we had to take detours as the Germans had mined the road. At one place a bridge over a stream was gone and the whole division had to cross over single file. Everyone had reached the last stages of exhaustion. Captain Dye, a corking good officer, fainted on the march, lay unconscious in the mud for an hour, came to and joined his company before the morning attack. Major Fraser, while riding at the head of his battalion, fell asleep on his horse and rolled off. End quote. Ted goes on to describe this armistice thing they've been hearing about. Quote, All through the last ten days, vague rumors had been reaching us concerning a proposed armistice. None of us really believed that there was anything in them. This was largely on account of the fact that during the year and a half we had grown so accustomed to war that we could not imagine peace. End quote. Wilson and the Germans continue to exchange notes, clarifying some things. Wilson demands that Germany withdraw their submarines that are still prowling the Atlantic, sinking British and American ships. Prince Max will do these things against heavy objections in the German military. They also bring in some liberals into the cabinet, do these, you know, small personnel changes to give Germany, you know, the whiff of a democracy, hoping to appeal more to Wilson. And there's just this back and forth bickering in, inside of Germany and with the Americans uh, that you, you just want to scream, stop it. People are still dying. I have this horrible image in my head of, you know, one of those old grandfather clocks with a pendulum that just goes back and forth. But instead of the pendulum, it's an ax. And every second, tick tock, tick tock, it's killing people. That is what's happening. Wilson finally returns a note to the Germans on 22nd October, basically telling them, hey, glad you're on board with the 14 points, but we still have a problem and it's with your government. Wilson says regarding the changes they made to their government, quote, it may be that future wars have been brought under the control of the German people, but the present war has not been, and it is with the present war that we are dealing. It is evident that the German people have no means of commanding the acquiescence of the military authorities of the empire in the popular will that the power of the king of Prussia to control the policy of the empire is unimpaired, that the determining initiative still remains with those who have hitherto been masters of Germany. Feeling that the whole peace of the world depends now on plain speaking and straightforward action, the president deems it his duty to say without an attempt to soften what may seem harsh words, that the nations of the world do not and cannot trust the word of those who have hitherto been the masters of German policy. End quote. Boom. Your people in charge, we don't like you, we don't trust you, we're not talking to you. And I think I've given you enough of Eric Ludendorff to so far guess that this does not sit well with him. Ludendorff, three weeks ago, who had broken down and wanted to end the war immediately at this says, nope, if that's what they want, war's back on, we keep going. And this highlights something I've heard Persian criticize for other 
military, civilian leadership in general regarding the end of World War One, that these armies are, are driving hard and they're fighting and dying. They're out of their trenches. This open warfare again, and open warfare is deadly. And looking at the dates and the casualties mounting, you want to scream, you know, again, stop. What are you doing? Stop attacking. But what we know with our benefit of hindsight and what they do not is that the war will end soon. At the time, they assumed it was going to go on. They were already planning for offensives in 1919. And if you're Pershing and you can see the Germans starting to crack and you got them on the run, you keep going. You don't stop and you don't dig in. So the Americans continue to push up the Meuse and the Air Valleys towards Sedan and that critical German rail link. And on 10 October, Pershing does probably the best thing he's done on war. He takes himself out of the fight. He's under enormous strain. He's supposed to be the AEF commander and he's down way too far in the mix of things. He needs to let his men fight. He needs to delegate. So Pershing appoints that old 1st Division commander from Kentingi, now Lieutenant General Robert Bullard, to command the newly formed 2nd American Army, freeing Pershing up to be on the same level, ostensibly, with the other Allied leaders, the Foshes, the Hagues, to talk about strategic decisions. And we can see how effective the Americans have been at quickly building their combat power. Remember, it was just in July at Soissons, the first American corps are going into attack. In September at St. Mihiel, you know, you have a first American army. And here we are in October, all of a sudden you have a second American army. Fortunately for the Americans and the rest of the world, really, Ludendorff and Hindenburg will get caught with their hands in the cookie jar. They release their own answer to Wilson's note, kind of unsanctioned by the German government, and order it sent out to all troops, basically saying Wilson's demands for unconditional surrender is unacceptable to us soldiers. You know, we're going to fight on even if it means our own destruction. Hindenburg will send this order out to all the troops on 24 October. Now, Ludendorff is happy with this order, but apparently the rest of the German government is not. This order is quickly squashed before it can fully get out, and on 26th of October, Ludendorff meets with the Kaiser in what he says are some of the bitterest moments in his life, and the Kaiser essentially blames Ludendorff for losing the war and accepts his resignation. With Ludendorff gone, the final roadblock is removed. Now there's a saying that you go bankrupt slowly, then suddenly, and that's really what applies to Germany at the end of World War I. On 30 October, back in the east, Germany loses another ally when the Ottoman Empire drops out of the war. On the Italian front, the Italians launch a massive counterattack, and after pretty much years of stalemate, finally breaks the Austria-Hungarian forces and the army route so bad that on 3 November, they drop out of the war, and their empire is disintegrating as part of this armistice. The Austro-Hungarians dropping out of this war opens up a largely undefended southern flank where the Entente can attack through and get to Germany. Now, if you're wondering where the death blow is going to come from, it's going to come unexpectedly on the naval front. Germany has withdrawn its subfleet at the insistence of President Wilson, and the fleet admiralty did not like this one bit. They had largely been sitting on their hands since the Battle of Jutland in 1916, and now with all these U-boats back, you know, at port, they decide to go down in one last blaze of glory. 
They issued a naval order on 24 October. And the plan is essentially to have their ships dash out of port to these kind of key strategic areas, the Thames Estuary, the coast of Flanders. And this is going to cause the British fleet to launch from their home base up in Scapa Flow to come out and meet them. But the Germans now with their U-boats back home are going to use these U-boat screens and set up and waiting for them uh, so they can, you know, sink the British fleet. Now, German sailors are not dumb. The British fleet is the best fleet in the world and three times their size. And the sailors see that they're largely going to be suicided for the sake of things like glory and honor. And so they start to mutiny. It's bad enough that the ships never make it to their destination. The German ships have to turn around and head back to port. They return to their base at Kiel, and that's where the mutiny turns into a full uprising on 3 November. Sailors start to form Soviet-like councils of workers and sailors, and this quickly starts to spread to other ceilings. And this is what Ludendorff and other imperial conservative Germans had long feared, a general revolution. Now, it is not a full-on Bolshevik revolution uh, with the bloodshed that they're seeing in Russia. It's pretty moderate as far as revolutions go. The German Kaiser, Wilhelm, he's really the Prussian king of kings. You know, he's a king over other kingdoms. And so, shockingly, on 7 November, the father of that German general that we've mentioned several times now, Crown Prince Ruprecht, his father, King Ludwig III of Bavaria, is forced to flee his kingdom, and the people declare a people's state of Bavaria. And one by one, these kings and their little kingdoms start to be deposed. On 10 November, after being advised by his generals that the army won't fight to keep him on the throne, Kaiser Wilhelm flees to the neutral Netherlands. Now, back in the American sector, Ted Roosevelt knows nothing of this. He's out on the far edge of the American army advance. The 1st Division, among other divisions, have a pace that they have picked up and they're racing for that key objective of Sedan. George C. Marshall says of this mad dash, quote, There were numerous cases where soldiers dropped dead from exhaustion, wonderful examples of self-sacrifice and utter devotion to duty. It requires far less of resolution to meet a machine gun bullet than it does to drive one's body to the death. The men of the 6th Division, which lacked thousands of draft animals, substituted themselves for the missing horses and mules and towed the machine gun carts and other light vehicles. In six days, the army had advanced 38 kilometers and had driven every German beyond the Meurs from Sedan to Verdun. It was a wonderful and inspiring feat of arms. Yet the world was so intent at this time on the exchange of messages between President Wilson and the German government that our people at home failed to realize that American troops had achieved a splendid victory. End quote. That victory was not without cost, though. The nurse that we had mentioned earlier, Shirley Millard, supporting the French, had been reassigned and was now treating wounded Americans. One of them was Charles Whiting of Fairfield, Indiana. Charles had had a hard life. His father had died at 14, and he had been caring for his mother ever since. And Shirley got to know him after days of caring for him in this horrible hospital. Shirley says, quote, He has, he won, has our won our hearts, hearts so, completely so completely that we dread, that we the, dread end the end to come. come. He is a young sergeant in the 2nd Engineers, 
shot through the spine and totally paralyzed. Even now, with his spirit almost over the brink, one can see what a wonderful boy he must have been. He is so lovable, clean, and sweet as spring water. He could not speak more than one or two words at a time in a gasping whisper, but manages to say thank you and smiles with his eyes whenever anything is done for him. He cannot move a muscle except his eyes and two fingers of one hand. He lies all day and all through the long night in exactly the same position. We do not dare move him. We all love him so much that we are trying to keep him with us as long as possible. Today, he tried to say something, and I bent down to listen. He said, My mother. It is getting more difficult for him to speak. I asked if he meant that he had not written to her for quite some time. His face relaxed with relief. His eyes said yes, and with the two fingers he could still move, he motioned toward his pocketbook. I got it for him and found his mother's name and address and told him I would write to her. Tears came to his eyes for the first time. They were not, they were for, not himself, for himself, but for her. her. End quote. I think it may surprise some of you fellow history nerds out there because it surprised me that the Muse Argonne Offensive is the bloodiest campaign in U.S. history. In the 46 days of the campaign, 26,000 Americans are killed and another 100,000 wounded. And compare that to something people know a lot about. Let's say the Marines of World War II, all those terrible battles. Guadalcanal, Iwo Jima, Peleliu, Okinawa, all those Marines killed in action in World War II, and it's not as high as the Meuse-Argonne Offensive. And that's not to disparage the Marines in World War II, it's just to illustrate how much slaughter is going on in this 100-square-mile area for about a month and a half. And Shirley Millard, sitting in that awful hospital in the fall of 1918, will be holding Charlie Whiting's hand as his name is added to those killed. The next day is the 11th of November, and George C. Marshall gets a call at about 6 a.m. that the armistice is to begin at 11 a.m., the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. Now Marshall will get on the horn immediately and let everyone know, and you can imagine how that goes with communications in World War One. And this is going to cause some problems, even after the war, because... Pershing is going to be brought to testify before Congress because he orders the attacks to continue right up until 11 a.m. Now, Pershing will say in his defense that he is just following Foch's orders. And so you get these tragic stories that emerge of troops not hearing about this armistice, you know, in time and continuing the attack with the Germans, like waving at them like, no, no, the war's over. There will be commanders that will order their men to, you know, assault and attack these towns at the last second, you know, just so they can have a place to sleep for the night. Finally, you have the story of Henry Gunther of Baltimore, Maryland, who will be killed at 1059, charging up one last machine gun nest with the Germans and his buddies telling him to stop. In these last few hours, 320 Americans will be killed with another 3,200 wounded. Now, if you had to describe the initial reaction of the armistice, it would probably be disbelief. At the start of World War I, there had been a short war feeling. Everyone thought it would be a very short war. And now by this point, there was a long war feeling. People had started to 
you know, tragically believe this war would just never end. It would just keep going and going. Ted and his men are on the march when word comes down of the armistice. And Ted says, quote, I sent word to the men. It was announced up and down the column, and a few scattering cheers were all that greeted it. I don't think it really got through their heads what had happened. I know it had not got through mine. That night we stopped in the Bois de la Falée, and for the first time, the men began to realize what had happened. Fires were lit all over. Around them, the men gathered, singing songs and telling stories. It was very picturesque, the battered woods and the flaming fires and the brown, mud-caked soldiers, end quote. Across the whole line, from the channel all the way down to the Swiss border, for the first time in four years, the artillery is silent. Ted says he could hardly believe it until, you know, someone shouts at him that, hey, Colonel Roosevelt, your wife is here. And Ted comes running up this muddy road to find that his wife had driven up from Paris. And there are videos of this, and I'll post it on my Instagram. Ted wobbling around on this cane around this destroyed town. Eleanor will tell him, hey, war's over. I've done my part. I'm going back home to the kids. Ted says his goodbye, and then he's on the move. As part of this armistice, the Germany has to guarantee that they can't decide to restart this war. Remember, this isn't a peace deal yet. This is just a pause in hostilities. And as part of it, they have to give three bridgeheads across the Rhine River. So the Americans are going to occupy the city of Koblenz. Just in case the Germans decide to restart fighting, the Americans will be in a good position. It is in Koblenz in January of 1919 that Ted will receive a telegram from Archie that says, the old lion is dead. In many ways, you could add President Theodore Roosevelt to the list of people killed in World War I. He had stumped hard for the war. He had gave speeches for the war. He'd raised a ton of money for the war. He wrote numerous newspaper articles in support, and he had supported his four sons, his daughter, his son-in-law, and daughter-in-law in France. Theodore Roosevelt was never the same after Quentin was killed six months prior. He was found sitting in his chair, often staring out at the waves, saying, Poor Quintykins. His health had degenerated quickly, and on 6 January 1919, he died in sleep from a pulmonary embolism. The vice president at the time, Thomas Marshall, said, quote, Death had to take him sleeping, for if Roosevelt had been awake, there would have been a fight. End quote. Ted wrote to his mother, telling her, quote, To us and to the country, Father can never die. He is too much a part of us. He is in our best thoughts and actions. He is represented, end quote. Eleanor had said she thought her and Ted's life were a series of crises, and unfortunately, Eric Ludendorff, dejected and angry, will propagate his stab-in-the-back theory, and a, a young German veteran, angry at the Versailles Treaty, will team up with Ludendorff. This guy's name is, of course, Adolf Hitler, and this will be the final crisis of Ted Roosevelt's life. And although we don't glorify war in my house, I can't help but be in awe of the Roosevelts. Because when America joins the Second World War, Ted Roosevelt is 54 years old. He has two grandchildren. 
No one is coming for Ted in this war. No one's asking Ted to go fight. America has plenty of sons that can go and fight in this war. He can sit this one out. And other people might. But not the son of Theodore Roosevelt. Ted Roosevelt re-enters service, and he and his son, named for his brother Quentin, wind back up in his old unit, the 1st Division. Ted is promoted to Brigadier General as they invade North Africa, and he is the second-in-command of the division. He takes part in the invasions of North Africa, Sicily, and Italy. In Italy, he was, in my opinion, unjustly removed from his position as the assistant division commander, and this is mostly about Patton's problems with the commanding general and kind of Patton deciding to clean house in that division. At this point in the war, in 1943, Ted was pretty sick and his health was getting worse. There's a picture of him from Sicily standing next to Patton. And Patton's a a decent-sized guy, you know, six foot, six foot one. He was an Olympic athlete at one point, you know, and, and Ted looks like a stiff breeze is going to knock him over. He's gaunt. He's more clothes than man. Now, the sensible thing to do would be to rest up and, and maybe return home. Again, he's he's done his part now in two world wars. But any other son might do that, but not a son of Theodore Roosevelt. Ted organizes Eleanor once again and gets her to go see his old buddy, George C. Marshall, who's now the Army Chief of Staff, to work and help get Ted a new job in this coming invasion of France. You know, Ted tells her it's okay to pull strings if it's for a more dangerous job. And he gets his orders. He gets everything he asks for. He's assigned as the assistant division commander for the 4th Infantry Division. And Ted soon learns that the 4th Infantry Division are to be in the first wave of D-Day, landing at Utah Beach. Again, no worries. Assistant division commander, that's pretty high up. He should be okay. Those kind of guys stay behind the line not the son of Theodore Roosevelt. Ted goes to his boss, the commanding general, Major General Raymond Tubby Barton, and Ted argues with his boss that, hey, I know what the plan is, but I should be in the first wave to hit the beach. You know, no one's seen more invasions than I have. I have the experience. And you can see a version of this in the classic movie, The Longest Day, with Ted Roosevelt being played by Henry Fonda, as Ted successfully argues his way into the first wave of invasion troops. The night before D-Day, Ted writes Eleanor one last letter, We are starting on the great adventure of the war, and by the time you get this, for better or worse, it will be history. We are attacking by daylight the most heavily fortified coast in history, a shore held by excellent troops. We are throwing excellent troops against it, well-armed and backed by good air and naval support. We are on our transports, buttoned up, our next stop, France. The Germans know we are coming for the harbors of southern England have been crowded with our shipping and the roads choked with our convoys. I don't think I've written you that I go in with the assault wave and hit the beach at H-hour. I'm doing it because it's the way I can contribute most. It steadies the young men to know the that I am with them, to see me plodding along with my cane. 
We've got to break the crust with the first wave or we're sunk. For the following groups won't get in. At first, Tubby Barton did not want me to do this, but eventually he agreed after I'd written a formal letter stating my reasons. Quentin goes in at, I believe, H plus 60. That's bad enough. Frankly, it may be worse than when I go in. We had a grand life, and I hope there will be more. Should it chance that there's not, at least we can say that in our years together, we've packed enough for ten ordinary lives. We've known joy and sorrow, triumph and disaster, all that goes to fill the pattern of human existence. Our children are grown and our grandchildren are here. We have been very happy. I pray we may be together again. This will be the last for the present. The ship is dark. The men are going to their assembly stations. Before going on deck, they sit in darkened corridors to adjust their eyes. Soon the boats will be lowered. Then we'll be off. End quote. In the early morning hours of June 6, 1944, Ted scrambles over the side of his ship into a landing craft. And he swats at a young soldier with his cane when the man tries to help him. The Higgins boat bobs up and down in the surf as they motored her to shore. Huge battleship shells scream overhead. Ted was in the first wave of 20 boats and 600 men. The ramps drop and he hobbles ashore with a pistol in one hand, one extra magazine, and a cane. He is the oldest and highest ranking member to come ashore on D-Day. Indirect fire is landing around, and Ted surveyed the scene. Ted knows exactly something is wrong. The landmarks are all wrong. He gathers the leaders around and tells them where he thinks they are, and he decides to roll with it, and it's not the worst thing either. They have landed a mile south of their intended beach, and they get a little lucky here. The defenses are not as strong and Roosevelt will spend the next five hours trampsing up and down the beach, directing traffic, motivating troops, in what Omar Bradley described as a cheery bullfrog voice. And when the commanding general, Tubby Barton, will land at 11 a.m., he finds Ted waiting on him to give him the perfect picture of what's going on. It was Ted's performance on D-Day that was remembered by so many there that day and got the attention of subordinates and superiors alike. And the question comes up, why is Ted not a division commander by now? In the month after D-Day, it has become clear that he has earned it. The U.S. will have 61 divisions in Europe, and people qualified for those jobs are few and far between as it becomes apparent that men aren't up to the job. Omar Bradley was firing division commanders left and right, and at this critical moment, they can't afford to keep a guy like Ted on the bench. General Bradley has a division, the 90th, that is underperforming, and he needs a new commander. Bradley thinks Ted might be the answer. Bradley writes in his memoir, a soldier's story, quote, I recalled, however, in thinking of Roosevelt that Eisenhower and I had once agreed in Sicily that Ted's easy indifference to discipline would probably limit him to a single star. The men worship Ted, I had explained to Ike, but he's too soft-hearted to take a division, too much like one of the boys. But it was not a disciplinarian that the 90th needed now. It called for a man with vitality and courage, a man who would pick the division up single-handedly and give it confidence in itself. 
If anyone fitted that description, Ted Roosevelt was his name. With a thick-skinned disciplinarian as his second-in-command, Ted would have the 90th brawling with the German in a couple of weeks. End quote. And so Bradley makes the request to Eisenhower to approve Ted's second star and for him to take over the 90th division. This was all unbeknownst to Ted, though, at the time. On the evening of 12 July 1944, Ted receives a visitor. It's his son, Quentin. And Ted wasn't expecting him and was ecstatic to see him. The weather had been terrible and it wasn't kind on Ted. His men had found an old German headquartered truck and had refurbished it into kind of a camper for Ted. Ted and his son sat in the back and talked about, you know, old times and the present and the future. And it was here for the first time that Ted revealed to his son that he had been having chest pains and getting very tired. And before Quentin left, he made his father promise that he would lay low and see a doctor. Quentin left his father happier than ever and returned to his unit. Quentin had just returned to his headquarters when he got the call to come back. His father, Theodore Roosevelt Jr., was dead at age 56 of a heart attack. Again, unknown to Ted at the time and to his son Quentin, Eisenhower had indeed approved him for his second star in a promotion to Major General and command of the 90th. It was an incredible achievement for a reserve officer. Also unknown to Ted, that word had spread about his actions on D-Day, and his superiors and two subordinates on the beach that saw him in action had recommended him for the Medal of Honor. And when his wife, Eleanor, dressed in all black, receives her husband's Medal of Honor, his old friend from World War I, George C. Marshall, will be standing at her side. One of my favorite poems is one by Rudyard Kipling called If, and spoiler alert here, but the poem is about a father talking to his son, you know, telling him all the things he can do, and if if he can do these things, then he'll be a man. And there's a line that reminds me of Ted, quote, If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone, and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. Ted had been doing that his whole life. You know, when he was an undersized runt playing football in college, when he got sick at school and nearly died in World War I through the gas attacks and getting shot in the leg, through night marches, through the interwar years that we didn't even get to touch on, when he was governor of the Philippines and Puerto Rico, through hunting expeditions that nearly killed him, through the invasions of North Africa, Sicily, Italy, the beaches of Normandy. Ted had forced his body to go on until it couldn't anymore. Ted's mother had once claimed that all he ever wanted to do was be worthy of his father. And even after Theodore Roosevelt's death in 1919, it was still driving Ted. It was driving all of his sons. None of them should have been near this war for various reasons, but they all ended up back in uniform. Kermit had a lot of difficulty adjusting to life in the interwar years. He had depression that he treated with the bottle and with women who weren't his wife. That depression followed him into this war, first in the British Army, where he was fought and wounded in Norway, then again in the American Army. He was stationed up at Fort Richardson, Alaska, and that is where he shot himself in 1943. 
Archie too would wind up in uniform again, despite being deemed 100% disabled from his World War I wounds. He ended up as a battalion commander fighting in the Pacific against the Japanese. He will see heavy fighting in New Guinea, where in typical Roosevelt fashion he was always close to the action, close enough at least to be wounded by a Japanese grenade that injures the same knee that was injured in World War I, and Archie will be the only son to survive both world wars and become the only service member in U.S. history, that I know of at least, to be declared 100% disabled twice. After the war, Ted's body and the body of his baby brother Quentin will be exhumed, and they'll be laid side by side in that beautiful American cemetery in Normandy, France, laying to rest a whole family, a whole generation, devastated by war. And therein lies my worry, not to say I'm as great of a man as Theodore Roosevelt was. We don't all have that capacity in us. But I like to think that I am and that many of you listening have the ability to be as good of a father to our children as he was to his. And every day I see that, I see the impact I have on my kids. It's one of the most most rewarding things about being a parent. T.R. had said after Quentin's death, quote, to feel that one has inspired a boy to conduct that has resulted in his death has a pretty serious side for his father, end quote. And that's something I think about often. So although my son and I may play with my old toy soldiers, we may build Lego tanks, war is not something that is glorified in my home like it was in Theodore Roosevelt's. I don't want my kids to try to live up to me and wind up getting themselves killed. Still, I'd be lying if I said I wouldn't be proud if my children ended up serving, if there was that true need to serve. So I guess I get around that by saying, I hope there isn't a need for them, that they can live in peace in a world that doesn't lose its mind like it did for the Roosevelt children. And I think a lot about that picture of the Roosevelts when they were younger, when these Roosevelt children were true children and their father was president, and how innocent and little and safe they all looked. And I think about it when I look at my own kids. I had mentioned my apologies for how long it took this podcast to come out. Well, one of the reasons is we just had our third child. And I was in the middle of this research when it came time to name him. We gave him the middle name Theodore. And people will assume, and they often do, that it's for President Theodore Roosevelt, which isn't in itself a bad thing. He's still one of my favorite presidents. But if there's time, I correct them and tell them a little about his namesake. Theodore Roosevelt Jr., A man that, at least in my opinion, deserves some time outside of his father's shadow. Bourbon and Battles is a podcast created by me, Joshua Kaufman. Artwork by Morgan Underwood. 
You can find more of her work on Instagram at Morgan Underwood Art. You can also find me on Instagram at Bourbon and Battles. I do all kinds of things there. Funny memes, not so funny memes, whiskey stuff, battle stuff. You can find it all. Until next time.